Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Rashad. Hello, I'm Michael Rashad, and welcome to Fireside FileMaker. Today we've got a very special guest, and I'm going to have John Mark Osborne introduce him. Hi, my name is John Mark Osborne, and I've known Andy LeCates for a couple decades now. I first met him as a systems engineer when he worked for FileMaker Incorporated in the sales department. Uh, he's always been a great supporter of the community, the FileMaker community, and knows FileMaker better than just about anybody I know. Uh, I would put him into an elite category of Claris employees who have committed their career to FileMaker, and we'll talk a little bit about those people as we go along. But it's very rare these days for somebody to spend as much time at one company, and, and with the utmost respect, I want to welcome Andrew Cates to our podcast. Uh, and uh, why don't you say a little bit, uh, say hi, Andy, or whatever you want to say. First thing I want to say is I hope my boss watches this. Thank you, John Mark. That was awesome. <laughs> and I'm really happy to be here, mate. It's great to spend some time with you again. It's been a long, long time. And uh, Michael and uh, and Mark, it's uh, it's great to be here with you guys as well. So Thank thanks you. for having me. It's mutual. Yeah. And Andy, my first introduction to you was you on stage at a DevCon presenting some great new features of FileMaker. And I remember just you being enthusiastic about it and then getting the applause. And then it was just a whole feeling. And after I watched that first presentation way, way back in the day, I thought to myself, you know, the employees here at Productive, they've got to see this. It's just so different when you're there in the mix of it all and just so excited. So that's those are my fondest memories of my first meeting with you. And I actually didn't meet you until many years later in person. Funny. Um, yeah, we've all been down this. This journey has been a long one for us all. And, um, you know, thank you for the kind words, mate. You know, I think uh, I've, I've presented a few times and uh, as have have you. And um, yeah, you don't know really who's who you're touching, who you're impacting sometimes and who you're going to get to know years later. And uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a great thing. It's what I one of the things I love most about this community. It certainly is. So I, I have to f- feel like I have to say this. Uh, I, I've got a, a man crush on Andy. Um, and I think that Mark probably does too, and Michael does too, but Michael might not say anything about it. Right. <laughs> he hasn't come out of the closet yet with his man crush. Uh, my wife is in the house, so yeah. be careful. We might need to keep it down. <laughs> she, right. she might come in here and yell at us. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm used to calling you uh, Andy. Um, do you prefer Andrew or... I'm, I'm not particularly uh, picky on this one, uh, John Mark. I, I've, I've grown up and been Andrew and Andy both my whole life. And uh, so I hear them both. I respond to them both. I, I sign my emails, Andrew, but um, as long as you don't use Drew, that's what my mom used when she was mad at me. So uh, either is just, just fine. What does your wife call you? <laughs> that, that's, that's between me and her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Before we get into the FileMaker stuff, I, I think uh, I, I'd like to talk about something that maybe not a lot of people know about you, and, it, and it's your photography hobby. I see it all the time. Um, my daughter just so happens to be uh, an accomplished photographer also. And I just, you know, whatever you want to share about it, I'm just people are interested in, hey, what does Andrew do uh, outside of FileMaker? You know, what, what kind of things is he involved in? Yeah, man. No, I appreciate that. Um the uh, I love photography. I, I have my whole life. Uh, my uh, my grandfather, when I was very young, I, I couldn't remember exactly what age, but maybe somewhere around twelve years old, you know, gave me a Kodak Instamatic camera, one of those little you know rectangular shaped things, and 
I, I don't know. He was a photographer and kind of got me hooked on it. And I've, I've played at it on and off uh, throughout my whole life. Um, I, the, the sad truth of it right now is that I don't feel I'm exercising that muscle very much. I've been a little busy in other parts of my life. My, my daughters have grown up and they're moving into their professional careers. And so, uh, you know, we've just been busy. And uh, so I haven't I've put my sort of heavy equipment aside for a little while, but I'll get back to it. I know that'll happen. Um, and I think you know, right now I'm exercising most of the craft or the art, if you will, frankly, using my iPhone 12, which is an amazing device. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's always been a passion of mine. And, and it's been interesting to me as well, being in technology, you know, we, we nerd out, right, about building software. And uh, photography has an artistic appeal for me, but it also has that, that sort of nerd focus, right? It's about the equipment, science, and you, know, you get into it. And now computational photography is just taking things to a whole new place. Uh, so the, the, the science of it and the art of it is changing. And uh, I, I still track it. I'm still a fan of the art. Um, but man, I, the last time I set up a tripod, it's, it's been a couple of five years. So I'm um, sad to say I'm not doing it as much as I used to, but we'll get back to it for sure. Andy, are you familiar with Trey Ratcliffe? Uh, I know the name. You should uh, look, his, um, look him up on the website. He does some extraordinary uh, photography, but he also makes awesome. these unbelievable videos. Um, I'll send you a link to them. They're um, um, Mandelbrot's. Um, nice. Just breathtaking. Anyway, I'll send you a link to it. You, you'll okay. enjoy it. I absolutely will. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Um, Is there anywhere we can see your photography, a public place you can tell people about, or is it all kind of, you know, just on your Facebook page and that's private stuff? Yeah, you know, I, um, I well, most of the photography I have been uh, playing at the last, uh, you know, couple half dozen years has been family. So yeah, it's pretty much private stuff. I was very active on Flickr when Flickr was really kind of in its own space, right? It was really at its uh, its peak, if you will. Um, I think um, they, they, they took the direction of the platform in, in kind of a different way. It lost some of its community sense, right? Um, and so a lot of the friends that I had as photographers online there, um, yeah, I don't get to see much anymore. And I used to post there a lot, but boy, I haven't been online there for a long, long time. So I guess the, the sad truth is I don't really have a public face for it right now. I'm kind of looking for what's next and uh, we'll see where that goes. I do still connect once in a while. I was active uh, in Atlanta with a, a photography guild and um, we had the run of the city to go down and shoot and we'd bring out, you know, either models or go do, you know, various set shoots and things. And it was a, a lot of fun. And I love those guys. They're, they're true artists. And so uh, sometimes locally, if, if someone's around, we do little exhibitions and things like that. But um Unfortunately, right now, I don't have a pointer for you. Well, hopefully, I'll get something online in the coming years. So. Just a, one more thing about the photography. You mentioned computational photography. Yeah. Can you tell the audience who what that's about? Uh, just a little brief. Yeah. I mean, I guess at its simplest, you know, uh, I have a you know pretty big Nikon kit or, uh, on you know that, that I carry around as my analog camera. And I guess it's not analog, it's a digital, but, um, you know, I collected a lot of lenses and, you know, there, there are effects that you get, you know, the wide angle effects, the depth of field effects, the, the blurring of backgrounds and things like that, that used to separate what you could do with a digital camera and what you could do with a, a, a fit, you know, big physical, you know, DSLR or something. Um, and now computational photography is changing that game, right? You, you probably have experienced the ability to put your iPhone into a portrait mode, take a picture of a person in the background, 
blurs out, right? That's purely computational. That's not lens physics, right? Apple's doing that to simulate uh, that 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 traditional lens physics, and, and and that um, you know obviously has great artistic value in separating a person from their background. Uh, but that's a, that's a very simple example of it. Um, there was something uh, that uh, Google, I think, demonstrated at Google I.O., I believe, what, last week, week before, that was kind of interesting, too, where they're doing something where you can give um, two photographs of the same subject material, but separated by time. And what they were demonstrating is that they can interpolate everything that uh, animated between those two photographs and deliver it to you, right? And it's entirely fictional, right? It's a deep fake. It's entirely computational. There, there's nothing that... that, that specific animation didn't actually happen, right? Um, and yet they, they make it so that it looks just so real. Um, so it, it's it's interesting these days what, what the cameras can do. Um, I guess another example is I, I took a photo recently. We're, uh, we're doing a home renovation project right now and uh, ripping out uh, a fireplace that we have in one wall. And when they did it, there was a dark space back behind the wall. And I was just curious what was back there. And I put my iPhone back there and it was like pitch black. And I took a picture just to see and the camera probably shot about 50 photographs, right? Or maybe more. It just rapid fired a ton of photographs and then used all those multiple photographs to blend them and lighten up the space and come out with something that had no shake effect. And I'm sure my hand was shaking. It brightened it to the point where it looked like daylight in there. And I could see everything that was back there, right? Um, that's entirely computational, right? It's not something you can do with a sort of traditional, you know, film or, or DSLR style camera. Um, so yeah, it's kind of changing the game. It's, it's really quite magic in some ways. I love it. In some ways I kind of hate it, uh, cause it, it steals some of the craft of photography, <laughs> right? You can do things so easily now, but, uh, but it, it, it does offer new opportunities and we got to respect that. Right. Well, it's also interesting, Andy, how the, the photography has completely changed in the last 15 years. I mean, film cameras almost are completely extinct now and, Everything's digital, everything's post-production, and you can do anything with any photograph, and it's all done with computers. It's the human element. I used to work in a dark room, you know, when I was in the army, and those days are completely and utterly gone, and I, I miss that. I enjoyed that part. Yes, I, I think it's the domain of, of craftsmen and artists now to, to play with those things, but... Um, you know, digital is, is certainly where everything is. I, I recall um, kind of anchoring this back to our, our business, right? I, I recall back in the day with Claris, uh, Claris was selling a product. This is back in the early 90s. And it was a, a, a photography book that came with a, a CD, I believe, uh, called Alice to Ocean. Uh, it is about this woman who uh, literally walked across Australia or, or walked from uh, Ayers Rock to the West Coast. And um, a photographer from Nat Geo, I believe, uh, went out and, and shot her journey and visited with her a couple of times. Uh, winding this all up, he did a tour with us and we went to various Macintosh user groups uh, around North America with him to demonstrate the product and get people's interest in buying it. And uh, the questions at the time uh, from the audience were interesting because digital cameras had just come out. The Apple Quick Take was a thing. And uh, people were kind of shrugging off digital cameras like this is going nowhere. Right. The quality is so terrible. And um, th this person that, that I was with, this photographer, you know, he's a career photographer, lives on film. And he would just look at the audience like you're nuts. If you don't think the digital is going to take over, you have no idea what's coming. Right. And, and he was right. And here we are now, 30 years later. And uh, and the game is just so, so different. Yeah, it, yeah I remember Vince Monano showing up with that first digital Apple camera uh, at a DevCon. 
yep. and thinking the same thing. It looks weird. It's straight, you know, <laughs> it's never going to go anywhere. And, and now you can't, you can't buy a roll of film anywhere, anywhere. Right. At the end of the day, it's all data, right? All those pixels. And, and when you said computational photography, I thought you were referring to, you know, things like image recognition and that kind of computational photography. But that's a whole other area of uh, yeah, yeah. mass exploration and opportunity. Absolutely. For sure. Images are data, just like words. <laughs> well, just before we go on, but I wanted to share with you guys a story that a friend of mine in New Zealand told me that in this conflict in Israel at the moment, the Israelis are using artificial intelligence to figure out where the attacks are coming from. And they give people in that building notice by dropping small explosive charges on the roof hmm. and give them an hour to get out. And then they launch missiles that go right into the foundation and they collapse that building like a, a shaped explosive charge. And the buildings to the left and to the right of it are completely and utterly untouched. Isn't that scary? That's a little scary for sure. So can you tell us a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, uh, for sure. I um, I was a, uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia now, but I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania. And um, when I went to university, I went to the Penn State University, uh, not to be confused with the University of Pennsylvania, which is a different school down near Philadelphia. Um, but uh, Penn State's right in the middle of uh, the state. It's uh, It's beautiful mountain country and farm country up there. And uh, I was there for about five years. And uh, started out studying uh, kind of science, chemistry, sort of pre-med sort of track and figured out kind of early on that I, I didn't really enjoy the lab time. And uh, so I shifted gears. I ended up going to a, a business major and uh, studying that. Um, and then maybe more importantly, uh, although it's not directly related to my academics, um, I picked up a job with a company called Apple and I, I became an Apple student rep while I was there. And uh, so at the time, the Macintosh was just coming out and getting popular. This is the late 80s. And um, I think during my tenure there, there were probably zero Macs when I started. By the time I left, there were probably 2,000 around campus. And I probably set up most of them. <laughs> so that was kind of my job is to go around and kind of advocate for the platform. I just loved the technology. That's I really had no mo other motivation than that. I got a little bit of money, but not very much at all. And uh, enough for pizza, I guess. And um you know, kind of probably learn to be an evangelist, right? It's it's funny how your career starts, right? I was telling the story of the platform, helping people set it up, doing basic support. Um, although I will say it was a it was a secret weapon for me going through college too, because particularly in the business programs, we were building a lot of content, a lot of presentations for classes and things, and um, I had access to Max and Laser Writers that nobody else did. They were still printing green bar reports, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, the teachers loved me, except for one. Uh, there was a teaching assistant there who literally called me to his office and was threatening to expel me from the university. And I could not conceive of what he was talking about until he showed me a report that I gave him that I think I created with like Microsoft Word 1.0. It had tables in it, but I did it on a laser writer. It was beautiful. It looked professional uh, for the time. And he could not conceive that a student at the university could produce that content. So he thought I had plagiarized. He thought I did a straight up photocopy and gave it to him and uh, was going to kick me out of the school. And I'm like, you're nuts, dude. I, so I, I had to help him understand <laughs> the technology that I delivered because you know, for him, it was magic. He just, he, he couldn't get it. So it was kind of funny. That's interesting because I was an Apple student rep at the university of California, Santa Barbara for, oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, I did that with, uh, if I remember his name correctly, this is a long time ago, Bill Stack was my salesperson. Right on. And I did all the kinds of stuff that you did, you know, go around and represent Apple. And occasionally I'd get in, in, in uh, arguments with the with the other uh, reps from other companies. <laughs> you know, the student, they all had, Apple, I believe, started it, but there was all kinds of student reps after that, at least at Santa Barbara. Yep. And we, we had to be walking by and I'm like, I just give them a little jib, like, you, you're not on a Mac, huh? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so. Well, the other thing we leveraged is as, as the Apple student reps, the software companies wanted us to show their software as well. So um, the Claris rep was was a good friend of ours. Um, Quark with the Quark Express back in the day, PageMaker, uh, all those pieces of software, we had access to them. And so um, we, I just became you know enamored with the the platform and all the software available on it. And of course, amongst all that was, was a little product called FileMaker. So I, I first touched FileMaker while I was there at school uh, doing that work and then turned that into a summer job and then a career. So I was going to say, it is amazing how we, all of us have ended up um, in the FileMaker world just because we fell in love with it. And uh, I hope that that's still true today, Andy. I don't know whether the, you know, the up-and-coming developers have the passion that, that we developed over the years. I hope so, but I don't know. I hope so too. You know, I, I do get a chance to meet with, uh, I'll call it young faces, I guess, uh, that, that enter the, the community uh, once in a while. And I do see it. You know, I think people that are looking to uh, build a career, technology is, is a very strong path uh, to follow. Um, and uh, I think there's still a lot of optimism about the tech and, and how you can, you know, embrace it. And I think our platform is so focused on business outcomes that people that want to learn about technology, but also make some money like young students that really need to you know, get pay rent. Right. Uh, it, it's a good platform for that. You know, I think we, we've been talking at uh, uh, DevCon and Engage for a couple of years about some programs that we've been working with uh, kind of disruptive education institutions uh, like this, this group called 42U um, that help teach technology to students and they give them free room and board and they teach them tech. But then it's a sink or swim kind of environment. You learn how to code uh, and periodically you go through this testing uh, sort of cycle. And if you don't keep up, you know, you get thrown in the pool. That's literally how they call it. And if you it's sink or swim and if you pass, you keep going on your education. If not, you, you basically fail out and, uh, and you go find something else to do. But as a result, you get some some people who are brilliant, but highly motivated. Right. They want to eat. Right. So, I mean, these are people just starting their career. Um, and we've introduced uh, our, our platform there, and a lot of students are picking it up because they, they see the business value. And then many of them are turning into interns that roll into our, our community of partners and are becoming really, really strong developers. Um, and, and some have moved out of community and gone to other companies and, and, and taken the platform with them. So I, I think there's still great opportunities there for youngsters. Uh, and uh, I hope that remains the case there, Michael. So you bet. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to see it firsthand with employees that are brand new to FileMaker that we hire them either out of, from computer science or some have an associate, some don't have a degree at all, depending on the position. And it's just amazing to see how they grow. And what's interesting that wasn't available 30 years ago when we started, the platform mm -hmm. was a lot smaller then. Now the platform is huge and it's got huge capability in so many directions. So I've, I find that some people are now starting to specialize, like this person might be really good at accounting integration with API technologies and plugins. Whereas this person, no, they're more focused on how to connect it with XYZ. And what we're finding now is developers can kind of specialize on the platform. Right. It's that vast. 
Well, I don't know whether you guys know this, but I was the first full-time anyway. professional farm maker developer in England. Yeah, absolutely. And I, when I started, which was back in 1987, I fell in love with it. And within six months, I decided that um, I was going to just do farm maker exclusively. And everybody I knew said, you're nuts. Nobody's ever going to pay you to do this. You'll be bankrupt in six months. Well, that's 33 crazy. years later, I'm still doing the it. first farm maker developer in the UK. I think it? that's grounds for knighthood. We need to, how do we start the, uh, the submission process? There? <laughs> well, the other thing you won't know, Andy, is that when Clarice released farm maker three, they hired me to develop the solution to handle all their dealers. Oh, and fantastic. I de designed the brochure for it. We work with a lot of partners uh, in that fashion. It's, it's awesome mm -hmm. that, uh, that you're part of that, Michael. I did not know that. Thanks for the bit of history. <laughs> no, you're welcome. I got lots of it. <laughs> As John will tell you, I'm very old. <laughs> I, that was what I was just about to say, but... <laughs> So let's talk about your career starting, at, I believe, at Claris and then at FileMaker and then at Claris again. Not, it never got interrupted, but, it, you know, the company changed. Uh, can you tell us how you started at Claris and, and, you know, go all the way through to now you're the director of evangelism at Claris? Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess stemming from uh, what I was doing at Penn State while I was in university, I got to know the, the Claris rep pretty well there. And uh, as I was looking to get out in the world and figure out how to feed myself, um, I interviewed pretty aggressively with Claris and I wanted to get uh, into the company. And I, I interviewed with the uh, sales managers in Boston and I was, I was going to do so in D.C. and in, in Atlanta because I was on the East Coast. These were all sort of most proximal to me. And I flamed out in Boston and uh, somebody else got in ahead of me in D.C. Uh, and so I thought my, my hopes were dwindling and I, and I flew down to Atlanta, had a great interview and uh, picked up a job there is essentially what, what we'd call an SE today, um, working with the, I guess I was a sales support rep. Uh, so, um, you know, really working with the sales team, doing demos for customers, doing a lot of uh, conferences and expos and things like that, and just showing people the whole Claris portfolio. So I got immersed in all the products there. Um, of course, Claris back then, we had, what, 11 or however many products. It was quite a lot. Um, but it was a fantastic environment. You know, Bill Campbell was, was still CEO of Claris when I joined. Um, and then, um, I was there for about six and a half years. So I got to see FileMaker from the launch of FileMaker Pro through, I don't know, version four or five, I guess. Um, I think that maybe version five launched just after I left. And, uh, at that time I left and I went to join, uh, Chris Moyer, uh, who's longtime, uh, great guy and, and an expert in the community. And uh, Chris had a consultancy and he um, was up in Chicago, but moving down to Atlanta. So I, I joined him and uh, worked for a couple, four years with Chris and, uh, and his team uh, that, uh, and I still love Chris, great friend. Um, and then uh, came back to FileMaker uh, in 2000 and I've been back ever since. So um, yeah, and I've had every job you can have. I, I was uh, the SE, I was, a, I was a trainer for a while. I guess before I joined Claris, I was actually doing tech support, John. So we share a little bit of a common background there. Um, and, you know, I've helped Chris and, and Bob Bowers author books uh, back in the 90s. And um, I've done sales. I've done development work. I was a pretty good developer there for a few years. I, I felt like that. And um, and it, it, at FileMaker since, I, I moved from recently uh, from the sales team uh, where I was managing a team of evangelists and SEs 
and I've moved over as of a year and a half ago or so to the marketing team. And so now I, I still hold a title of evangelism, but really my, my fight focus is uh, product marketing and, um, and also community now. That's actually new. Um, but I'm, I'm heading up uh, the community team now as well as product marketing. So I get to work every day with our product teams and I get to work every day with our customers and community. And, and I think that that broad sort of uh, responsibility and exposure to me is is very um, energizing. So I, I love that I get to touch a little bit of everything with this platform. You know, it's Andy, it's interesting when you, you talk about the title director of evangelism because almost everybody I know who's been developing it for decades, we all are absolutely evangelical about our love for it and our passion <laughs> for it, and we can't help it. I mean, people tell us to shut up because they're just sick and tired of hearing it. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the, the the title itself, and, and to be honest, uh, I, I should probably offer the formal correction that my job title now is Director of Product Marketing and Community. Um, but that said, I'm still an evangelist for the platform, right? And evangelism to me is a, it's a company responsibility, right? I, I advocate and help people across the organization tell the story of our company. Um, you know, you guys had uh, Brad come in to talk, uh, I guess, a couple weeks back. And um, as CEO, he has he is an evangelist for the company and the platform. Um, I think in the eight years he's been with the company, he has learned our customer, learned our product uh, with a great deal of depth and really understands it. I think that's a huge advantage to us. Um, so, uh, you know, having folks like him, our, our, our product managers like Rick Kalman, folks on the sales team, you know, we, we make evangelism kind of a shared responsibility. Um, but when I think of the title, uh, Michael, I, I think back to what, Guy Kawasaki, right? In the yes. early Macintosh days. In, Gosh, in the, yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's it's a title that I I, I have pride in, in being an evangelist because, uh, yeah, I think what we have is something special. And I, I think we need to get the story out there. So. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to the interview with, with Brad, it was a fascinating conversation that we all thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, he I was very surprised how um, personable and, uh, and open he was. I was expecting, I think we all were so, to some degree, some sort of political, I can't answer that, can't answer that, but he answered every question we asked without any hesitation. Yeah, no, Brad is, I, I, I was, I get to work with him as soon as he joined the company, he was VP of sales and I was still on the sales team. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a really smart, insightful person. Um, he's a very genuine person and very focused. Uh, so, I really enjoyed my professional relationship with Brad. I would say it's a personal one as well. I consider him a friend. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted his commitment, I think, to this this company and the platform um, is, to me, rather proven. And it is great to have a boss um, who really gets my job as well as I do, right? I, I, he can tell me uh, when I'm wrong. And uh, and that's fantastic, right? It's, it's a great motivator for me and, and for the teams. So uh, I, I, I like him. I think he's a great leader to have. Yeah, I, I think I had the same position as as Michael on on Brad and but when he came in, I mean, just changed everything and the way he spoke to us and how open he was. I I've got a completely different perspective on him since, you know, interviewing him and I and it's a good perspective. I I think that he's trying to do the right thing. And, and, uh, you know, the other thing I want to say was, uh, I think Andy, you've always been an evangelist since you started working with FileMaker. So I think it's a, 
why change your title? I mean, that's really what you do. You 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 promote and and show off FileMaker so well um, just by talking about it. That I mean, that's to me, you know, your title, and you should never take it away from you. So, well, it's funny in prepping for this uh, this podcast, I've been thinking about it, and you know, going back to what I first did at Penn State, I was really evangelizing a technology platform, right? So you know, despite my academic studies and my career aspirations and thinking of myself as a developer, there's always been this, 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 uh, you know, current of, uh, of, of being a storyteller. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. Thank you for the, uh, for the kind words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So going back to what I was saying earlier in the podcast, where we were talking about how your love of demoing and, and now it's clear after painting the picture of your story, exactly how how you became so good at that because it's something you've literally been doing since your career started in many ways. So it makes sense. But I had a curious question. Um, today, right now, a week in a life with Andy, how much FileMaker program, programming development do you get to do? Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting uh, question because I, I, I think of myself as... Um, a, 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 I don't know what to call it, a husk of a former developer, right? Somebody who used to be really good at this platform and the, the amount of actual like time, hands on keyboard, really just building, uh, you know, with the platform is, is significantly lower now, right? And I, there's a part of me that it, it breaks my heart to even share, say that, right? But the reality is um, I'm, I'm really busy essentially helping enable other people that do that great work. Um, and I still get it. I think I'm still pretty good with the platform. I think given, given a project and a little bit of time, I could come up with some magic, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, what the nature of my playing with the platform, you know, fundamentally changed when I came back to the company, right. 20 years ago, you know, where, when I was working with Chris and, and, and the Moyer group, you know, we had some big projects and, you know, you, I'd go in and I would focus on, you know, that project or one aspect of it. I would own it and you'd go super deep on the platform and you'd be solving that, that problem and figuring out best practice techniques to do that thing. Right. But then when you come back to the vendor, right, when I came back to FileMaker um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm an SE, I'm helping every customer with the platform. So my, my dives into the pool were much shallower, but I got to see a much broader range of solutions created with the platform and methods people use to do it. And so then you learn, you know, best practices, tips and tricks from sort of a different perspective. And I really, really like that. Um, and then as a product evolves over the years, I mean, I've stayed close to it, right? You have to, to help get to accurate certification questions and, you know, to be able to present to a group of developers with authenticity and credibility about a feature, what it is, what it means, you got to know what, you know, that thing is. So, you know, I do tend to dig into the platform and build, you know, demo files and test files and, you know, try and push and pull and tug at the features as they come out. So I understand them better. Um, but uh, the, the kind of work that I was doing when I was a developer, uh, you know, for, for, you know, providing services to customers where you're really solving the problem soup to nuts. Um, that's what I'm, I'm far from now. And uh, I kind of regret it, but I, I don't, right? Because I, at the same time, I get to meet so many customers and talk about how they use the platform and evoke its magic. So uh, so it's all good. But yeah, if, if I were to count up the hours, maybe a couple hours a week. Um, and, and in that couple hours, I would also lump in testing and playing with other tangential technologies or competitors and things like that, right? So I'm kind of all over the map, Mark. <laughs> I think, and the guys will tell you most likely, it's a lot like riding a bike because a lot of the features and files, the way it works is very similar to how it's always worked. 
defining fields, building layouts, building sure. scripts. So in many ways, it's like riding a bike and two hours a week is probably enough to keep you on the bike. And then, you know, with a little extra time for the new stuff. So, you know, I ask myself this question all the time, you know, how many hours a week should one do to not lose it, mm -hmm. you know, to not get rusty, to not get antiquated or outdated or to not be able to pass the certification test as an example. So right. it's a curious, uh, curious reflection on what you just gave us there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, my career trajectory is currently in a place where I, I don't need to be a, 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 you know, somebody who kills the certification exam, you know, and pass aces it, right? And then I'm not going out and delivering solutions that are, uh, you know, solving mission critical things. So if my if my saw isn't as sharp as it used to be, I, I think I'm okay with that. Um, but I still have such a passion for what what the potential of the platform is, that, you know, you got to you got to keep your fingers a little bit dirty in there and know what's possible, right? So it's, it's fun. Well, I think what's extraordinary to me, Andy, is that I'm in my 34th year of doing this, and there isn't a week goes by that I don't learn something new. That said something I mean, about you as a incredible. person, as well as, you know, regardless of the, the implications for the platform and the community. But I, that's, a, that's a great thing, Michael. Um, I think one has to be willing to learn, uh, you know, their entire life, right? So I respect that statement. You <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I, there's nothing gives me a bigger buzz than coming up with finding a new technique and going, well, I wish I'd never thought of that before. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I still get a buzz. I still love it. I'm not anywhere close to getting bored and I get bored easily. One of the things I think that Andy and Mark as well, because Mark and Andy are kind of in the same boat. They're big picture guys. I mean, Mark's a president of the company. You're a director. Michael and I are still doing all the, the programming work for our companies. We're, we're single you know, person shops. But I think what you two gentlemen have done and why I always call Mark for any kind of question, technical or whatever, is because he's built up that knowledge over so many years. And I think it's it's a pretty important thing because there are a few people who are still at Claris who have been there for so long. Um, you know, Rick Coleman, you mentioned before. I would like to anybody have any other people they remember who, who are just, just have been there for over a decade and are still there. Yeah, I was uh, I was the 491st person to join Claris. Um, and I was uh, under the 18,000th person to join Apple, right? Um, and, I, and I'm kind of proud of that. Um, a couple of years ago, Apple did a, a thing for, I think it's, was it the 40th anniversary of the company, where they created a whole series of gigantic posters and they had the name of every single employee in, in the order of their employee number. Um, and they had every, every poster, I think, had 20,000 names on it. And uh, I was on the first poster. So I'm like, yeah. I, I'm a geezer, right? But it was a, a mark of pride for me, but uh, definitely one of the old guys. Um, yeah, there's still uh, some folks that have been around for a while, right? We still have Clay as one of our architects on the platform. He's been here since he is employee zero, as far as I know. I don't know what his number was, but he's been here forever. Um, and then we have other guys like, uh, you know, Dave McKee uh, on the on the engineering team is still around. And I don't know when, when did Steve Karras join John Mark? I know he's a buddy. Right? In, in tech support. Yeah. He came in on the windows side, if I remember correctly. So right about when FileMaker for windows was, was released. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of folks that have been around for a long, long time. Um, at the same time, we got, we got a lot of fresh faces too. I, I'm extremely privileged to work with uh, a woman here in Atlanta named Kristen, who's joined me on the product marketing team and uh, came on board in November 
And uh, man, she is she is good and she's smart and uh, she's a fantastic friend and coworker uh, on my team. And um, so, you know, we have a lot of good, fresh faces that are, are digging in to help move the platform forward as well. And to me, that's equally energizing in many ways. But but we do have the core group that anchors us so we kind of know who we are. Right. Well, I, I just want to mention a few other people so they don't feel forgotten. Jimmy Jones. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Jeff Benjamin, I believe. Yeah, Jeff used to be a, a independent developer, and, and we onboarded him. I, I can't remember how many years ago that, that was. That was a long time yeah. ago. He's, I mean, it's it's probably longer than his uh, uh, you know development career outside of Claris. You bet, Marilyn Kretchen. Uh, is she still right? there? Oh yeah, she is. You she bet. was my absolute favorite manager. Well, there were there were two of them, but um, uh, but <laughs> but she was just so easy to get along with, and so just just management material. I mean, I'm not, uh, she, she's one of my favorite humans. She was in a meeting I was in just before joining you. And uh, no, I love Marilyn. She's, she's great to work with. Yeah. Say hi to her. Um, I'm thinking of the other yeah. gentleman who I loved and I, and I'm totally, um, he, I think he just retired from tech support. What was a little short guy? Oh, uh, Steve. Steve. Um, yeah, we lost we lost him a couple of years ago, but uh, but also a very very great human and um, loved him. Yeah, he just retired and uh, I, I miss him a lot. Uh, he's a good guy. Yeah, he he would he would just he knew what it was. He knew who he, who he needed to micromanage, and he knew he didn't need to micromanage me because I was going to do my job. And so he just come and say, "Hey, can I do anything for you?" I'd say, "No," and he'd just leave. That was it was the greatest. Right. That was so awesome. I loved him. He, he was a little bit like uh, uh, very Zen, right? He was so quiet, and uh, but he was a great leader and uh, very, very smart and uh, really enjoyed working with him as well. Okay, so for the hard-hitting stuff, and I think Mark's going to kind of come in behind me on this one and put it in a more eloquent way. Um, because Mark's yeah. much better at that than I am. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be hard. It wouldn't be hard, right? <laughs> so... Um, so this is a question, this is one of those hard hitting questions, I guess, and you may not be able to answer it or who knows what, but do you ever see Claris as a wholly owned subsidiary putting a copy of FileMaker on every Macintosh? Um, this could be a great way to get more people using FileMaker, which could lead to ultimately what you're trying to do to stay in business, which is more licensing opportunities. But Mark can probably explain it better and, and more, <laughs> mine's my, I have a very direct way of saying things, so. Yeah, no worries. Yes. Well, let, let me clarify that a little bit so that people can get a little bit of a background in history. Uh, there's a couple of things that are going on. First, when you buy a Mac, you get a lot of pre-installed programs. You get GarageBand and Photos and Calendars and things like that. Those are Apple-owned programs. And it just dawned on me, you know, Claris is Apple-owned, and it's, you know, more now than ever, more approachable to newbies, beginners, non-developer type than ever before in terms of onboarding and, and we're passionate and we've heard a lot of, uh, you know, explanation about how we want to keep the Claris platform friendly to new users as well as powerful for existing developers. So why not put FileMaker as a pre-installed app? And if, if that's not possible, simply because it doesn't line up with the culture of what's already there, why not bundle it so that when you buy a Mac, it's, it's bundled in the cart just like Logic Pro X and the other, you know, standard Apple-owned apps. So that that was, and in fact, this is not so unusual. I think Bento was bundled with a Mac back in the day. So was Clarisworks, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, back in the back in the back day. Back in the uh, back of the day. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, if the opportunity, you know, really were to arise uh, there, Mark, or, or that made sense, I, we would certainly uh, entertain it. Uh, we are a wholly owned subsidiary of Apple. I'm very proud to uh, to have an Apple badge. And, um, and uh, you know, there are a number of employees that have worked with us over the years that are over at Apple. I've got lots of friends uh, at Apple proper, if you will. Um, but we do operate independently, right? We are a, a subsidiary company. And so we have a certain amount of autonomy. Um, and uh, so the, the, the advantages um, we get, uh, there are many advantages we get at being part of Apple. But, you know, if, if, I look at the question you're asking uh, for something like FileMaker uh, to be included on a Mac. I, I think of it, uh, and I, I can't speak for Apple, but if I look at the Apple software that they provide on the Macs, they're largely individual focused, right? They're about productivity and they're about creativity. It's calendar and, and email for my productivity. It's photos and GarageBand for my personal creativity. Um, the FileMaker platform really is a B2B business management tool, right? It, it is something for you to create custom apps and software to run your business and, and you know, connect as well, right? Is, mm -hmm. is something there that is a, a SaaS presented piece of software for, for solving business problems. And so I, I don't know that I, I would even be able to articulate why it should be on every single Mac in that context, right? Um, but stepping back for a second, you know, are there are there ways in which we can work with Apple and, and, um, and, you know, sort of, I don't know, say exercise that, that marketable advantage? The answer is yes. And it changes, you know, as the years go, depending on whatever strategic imperatives are, are there for Apple or for us. Um, you know, there was a time for a couple of years where we were extremely active in the, um, in the retail stores at, at doing seminars to essentially local businesses, you know, that, that, that would come into Apple stores to watch us and, we would uh, you know, sell the platform there, and, and it was largely predicated around the notion of mobility for the iPad and giving a business rationale to the iPad with our software, and that was pretty successful. Um, and then Apple kind of changed its direction on where it wanted to take the stores and make them kind of like a town hall for the community, and so we, we did less of that. But on the other hand, then we have other opportunities, like recently, um, y'all may have seen the announcement around our uh, K-12 uh, initiative. Uh, where we have our Connect platform that is available for Apple School Manager now uh, in in the education market, and and that actually is an extremely important uh, strategic initiative for us, and uh, will be I think a huge lift uh, for our business overall. Um, so uh, it is absolutely great. It is great for us to be part of Apple, and we get a distinct advantage in, in being a part of the company uh, in many many ways. And we have a passion for Apple as as well as we do for our own products. Um, but to a question as specific as like putting FileMaker on a Mac, I don't have a good answer for you to say that I even know that that makes sense right now, right? Um, and, and we'll see where that goes. There's also the notion of comparing Bento, which is a little bit different animal, right? And uh, we could talk about that a little bit if you choose. But uh, I, I hope I'm answering your question at least at I think, some level. I think you are. I, I do want to. The only thing I think the only thing that I would say with regard to that, Andy, is that so many people that you we've all run into. Um, started off because they somebody gave them a copy of FileMaker and they started noodling and they came up with something that worked and they became evangelistic and enthusiastic and some many of them actually ended up being professional developers and it's that small the guy who you don't think is going to make any impact and all of a sudden does because he got his hand on something and he got hooked right yeah. 
Yeah, no, you, you're dead on there, Michael. We, I, I agree with that 100. percent And as a company, we do as well. Um, there, there is that thing. I, I just met a couple weeks ago. Um, had my first business meeting in about 15 months in in person, um, and that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> and and that business meeting was that uh, Martha Zink, uh, who's working with Codence uh, now, and um, Chrissy Ferris, who's working with uh, Proof Geist. Uh, they both flew into town into Atlanta and. Um, because they were here, we decided to mask up and go find an outdoor restaurant and sit and talk to each other for a little bit. And in the course of the conversation, um, both of them had a similar experience to what you are saying, Michael, right? That they had a, a work environment they went into where there was FileMaker and somebody you know, gave them a copy of the platform and said, we need you to make this app over here work or keep it working or modernize it or do something. And they had to learn it. Um, and, and they did. And, and then it became a secret weapon for their career, right? And, and they became FileMaker developers. So um, you're, the, the story you're, you're relating there, Michael, that, that's very real. Um, we believe it. And, and we even uh, actually articulate it in terms of our personas and how we design the products and think about how we market them. So, Michael, you stole my thunder. You said exactly what I was going to say. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's thunder. good. I try and always steal John's case, thunder. They give but, you uh... all the credit, Mark. <laughs> you give me all the credit. <laughs> no. That's right. Forget that, Michael. <laughs> well, that's what we usually do around here. So don't worry about it. You're falling right into the... What everybody else does. So. <laughs> That's so true. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the individual, you know, we can't forget the individual, especially when it comes to this. And, you know, we're in a gig economy where people aren't really necessarily working for companies anymore. There are a lot of people who are working for themselves and working part time and freelance, and everyone's got a side gig and a side hustle. And I think FileMaker is that uh, golden platform of opportunity where it starts with an acorn and grows into an oak. One last thing about that is, and I've been saying this every year for anyone who wants to listen, I honestly think we need a free copy of FileMaker, a non-shareable, non-networkable copy, very much like a mm -hmm. runtime, but not a runtime, um, you know, for a bento-like experience uh, so that the individual can really savor and enjoy the best of the platform. And then when it's ready to expand, we simply, you know, get a license, start sharing it, putting it on server and so forth. Yeah, this is a topic we think a lot about, uh, and we get a lot of feedback uh, on. And um, so we we definitely want uh, it is an imperative for the company to create a better onboarding experience for someone who is new. Right? Um, the um, the the platform you can see some of the the technology direction today in in FileMaker. Um, you know, we've had the uh, the technology preview in there for the uh, the quick quick app authoring or web authoring. Uh, where we, we have a web stack built into Pro now and you, you build a new app with it uh, with a whole different design language, right? But it's entirely no code. It's entirely drag and drop. And um, it's, uh, it, it's an indicator of where we're going to create, to solve a couple things, right? Because there's inertia in adopting the platform, not just in terms of its fundamental feature set, right? FileMaker is definitely grown up to be a robust professional tool. It's a little harder to get started than it was 30 years ago, right? Um, but there's also just the fundamental like deployment, like, you know, the, the, the people coming out of university now and getting into the workplace aren't really expecting to download bits, right? They're expecting SaaS and want to be able to tap into a cloud instance and just start working with something, right? And so um, we, we're, we're doing some things there. We're releasing it kind of in agile fashion right now. We're not to a 1.0 version status, if you will, on it. Uh, but it's something to play with. And uh, um, I, I think we'll get better at that with some feedback from the marketplace and, and, and you'll see some great things to come there. And the good thing about it, which is different from Bento, uh, isn't just that it's fundamentally different in the deployment model, but also that what you're creating with it 
uh, is is FileMaker, right? So when, when you do run out of runway with it or, or you hit a feature ceiling or something and you need more, we still have Pro. And then it's like, okay, I, I get the value of this thing. It's worth me downloading the bits now, playing with it, right? So we're looking a lot at the onboarding journey uh, to to enable that. And, and to your comment about you know freemium or some some low cost model to get in and, and really learn the platform, we think about that a lot too. No announcements today, but it's it's high on our our radar. So I've got a controversial idea for you, Andy, and I'm just going to throw it out because you never know where it, where things sit. Um, okay. I, if it was me, uh, I would make the trial version last six months. Um, with yeah. the ability to extend it for another six months for a nominal fee, say fifty dollars or something like that. And the other thing that I that I think FileMaker is, is Claris is making a mistake is not offering a monthly subscription, as so many other software companies do, because having to buy five licenses and pay for a full year is a lot of money for for people, and especially those who don't need five licenses, and those. Those instances, those clients are the ones who will fuel the growth of FileMaker for decades because that's how we have all fueled FileMaker for decades. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like you, you brought this comment or this question up with Brad. Am I, am I remembering that right or wrong? Um, I'm not sure whether I did or, or not. But I don't think <laughs> but, I gave I think I might possibly have done so, and I can always cut it out. But uh, no, 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 I'm not suggesting that. I, I think it's very fair. And it's a good question. It's another one that I think we think a lot about. Um, it's uh, both a business question for us and a technology question. There's some things that we need to do with our infrastructure, I think, to enable it and make it work in, in, a, in a working fashion. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely competing at, at the low end with a lot of SaaS platforms that are easy to get into, pay a monthly model and, and, and do, um, you know, th there's there's some need to understand, though, that market and uh, its value to us as a business. Right. We don't want to lose focus on you know, our core competencies either. And um, there's not necessarily the same value creation with those kind of tools that you get out of our platform. Like we are very robust, right? I think we would probably all agree that the problems you solve with FileMaker versus some of the no-code-ish, you know, cloud spreadsheet type platforms, the, the problems we solve are just deeper, right? Oh. You can really run a business on our platform and never run out of, you know, kind of runway with the feature set. Um, whereas with those other tools, it's a very different kind of thing, right? We're probably it is, yeah. absolutely, Andy. But the problem is that the people who are um, coming in from the outside without really understanding the difference that, you know, comparing Airtable, for example, is mm -hmm. to FileMaker mm -hmm. is like comparing a Model T Ford to a Bugatti Veyron. <laughs> and there is just no comparison. But a lot of people are quite happy with a Model T Ford because they just don't know any better. And it, and it will allow them to do a lot of things, but it won't allow them to really build a sustainable, powerful business tool. Just won't. Yes, uh, agree uh, for sure. And um, I think there's there's a number of uh, you know sort of outcomes or challenges that that come from that assertion uh, that we agree on. And uh, part of it goes to how do we communicate to the marketplace that fact, right? That you will run out of, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hit a ceiling, if you will, uh, with, with some of these tools. Uh, and those customers do come to us, right? So may, maybe, <laughs> maybe at some level, they're good for us, right? As a gateway drug to uh, the notion of uh, digital transformation and low code, you know, application development. Uh, but, you know, I think we want to be more in control of that journey. And um, uh, so, you know, there is there is that, like, can we communicate to a customer so they really understand well uh, what the platforms can offer? 
And can we differentiate what it means to be really a professional grade low code platform like we have uh, from a, you know, a lightweight SaaS platform? Uh, and then there's also, you know, our product trajectory. Do we have a, a, a an onboarding and entry model to our product that is facile enough and um, it's not the right word, but sexy enough, right? And uh, or glamorous enough and easy enough uh, that one would just entertain us as, a, as an alternative to some of those simpler platforms and yet then still smoothly be able to transition into the, the deeper, deeper feature set, right? I think John Mark would probably recall that, you know, back in the day, we used to talk about the platform um, uh, around the concept of um, how we call it revealed power, right? That when you first encountered the, the Claris products overall, they were very simple in UI and expression, but the, the deeper you dug in there, there was a lot of capability and power in the platform, and uh, which was the antithesis in the 90s of, you know, Microsoft that was assaulting you on the screen with every single feature they could possibly have, right? And uh, it was it was just a very, I don't know, uh, difficult sort of thing. And, you know, people, on or people, I guess, who preferred one way or the other, um, but uh, that, that revealed power, if we can execute on that notion really, really well, let somebody get into the platform with the simple product experience and then, you know, evolve them to the, the broader capabilities. Um, we look at it from that angle as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, you've got a, an incredibly difficult um, puzzle to solve because it, it is there is no easy answer. And, you know, we've we've all got ideas and opinions, but, you know, those are from from outsiders and, you know, that. I honestly don't know what the answer is. I mean, it's, if you give a modern day comparison, FileMaker is like having a black belt in karate and Airtable is like having a white belt. That's how big the difference is. Um, and you can't win a fight with a black belt. Right. If you're a white belt, <laughs> you can if you're a black belt. I think I can give some perspective on this, though, um, because when I started working in tech support, I believe it was back in 1991 or 92, I sat across from, uh, from Michael Whitney and he was superb at FileMaker. And we'd have discussions all the time when we were waiting for a phone call to come through. And we would often talk about, we need a light version of FileMaker. I mean, it's been going on for a long, long time. It's a tough nut to crack. I mean, wasn't Bento kind of a light version of FileMaker? Um, can it be done? It's it's not easy. We're not saying it's easy. We're just kind of interesting. These are kind of some of the things that the development community wants to talk about and would, has has wanted for for years and years and years. And and whether that's possible or not, they still want to hear your thoughts. And so we appreciate you you talking about that. Yeah, Bento in some ways was a light version of the platform, and it was a great uh, experiment and learning um, for the company in that you know. It allowed us to develop a, a simpler user experience uh, with a good amount of utility for an individual or a, a maybe a micro business, right? Um, the, the, there were some fundamental challenges, though, that that ultimately got in the way, which you know were part of it was its dependency on out external apps, right? You know, with Bento, you were aggregating data from you know calendar contacts and other things on the machines, and you know, so it, it was massively dependent on whatever Apple wanted to do with those products and. Um, we didn't always have fair warning, right? And so that that became a dependency that was just too expensive to to you know keep I don't know running with, I believe. And um, the other thing that I think was a fundamental mistake with Bento was it didn't make FileMaker files, right? And so when I, again going back to this notion of the um, the quick app authoring experience that we're building, uh, which is really a web based experience, you know that thing its natural home is as a software as a service, right? We we've, we've embedded it into FileMaker Pro, so anybody that's got FileMaker Pro 
Mac only today, but that will change someday. But anybody that's got FileMaker Pro can can try it and use it locally. It works offline, but it is still a web stack. Um, but that means that it, it's its natural ultimate destination is is the web. It's the cloud, and there I don't have to download any bits. I don't you know it's it's I can roll up, put in a, a an ID or email address or whatever, and start creating and share it with others. And and the barrier to entry is so so simple. And and the mechanism for creating it, by the way, a lot of the guys that are helping design it, uh, worked on Bento, right? We learned a lot there. And so um, we'll create something that, that allows you to build, you know, with great utility and, and speed and, and um, you know, simplicity uh, in this very, I don't know, zero config, uh, you know, zero deployment kind of model. And uh, and we won't make that mistake again where that thing can't become a FileMaker solution, right? So you have that ability to transition, or at least that's our intention, I should say. I mean, we'll see where the technology goes. We'll see how it, how it plays out. Um, but I, I hope that some of the listeners that have Max today uh, will will give it a go and play with it and give us some feedback because uh, we think there's something there. Okay, that was that was a heavy subject. Let's let's turn to something a little bit lighter here, uh, the developer conference, uh, which is now called Claris Engage because it's you know the company name change and the fact that it's virtual and stuff like that. But I want to talk about which we've all been to a lot of DevCons, uh, you know. I want to talk about favorite moments. So I'll start with one of mine, or one of the ones, the earliest ones that stick in my mind was uh, was one of these keynote speakers. And I remember, if I remember correctly, he had this long, flowing white hair, and he jumped up on the tables and was running around all the place and was talking about uh, tracking uh, traffic in Northern California. It was up in Berkeley or something with FileMaker and AppleScript. And I just, it just, it's such an impression on my mind. I don't remember anything he said, but I remember, I remember all of his actions. And, and that was just, it was such a fun DevCon. I remember that, you know, uh, like it was, the, the, you know, yesterday, uh, at least some of the parts. Do you, do you remember which which location that was, John Mark? I or, don't or know. Year? I really don't know. He was he was uh, he was he was the only guy who ever keynote uh, speaker ever jumped on a table. So. Jumped on a table because I am actually not remembering that one. And there's one DevCon I think that I missed early on. Um, one of the first three, I can't remember which one, but um, yeah, you know, I, I think over all those years, man, there's just so many experiences. Uh, I was thinking about DevCon and. and my memories of it. And it's funny for me, a lot of my, the things that have stuck with me are uh, very personal moments. Like the first time I met, I don't know, Ray Colligan or, um, you know, I think we were at DevCon in, in, maybe it was Palm Desert. It was one, one of the ones that had a lazy river. And I remember uh, meeting this fresh young face uh, and uh, she introduced herself to me and she was Sarah Sefferson. And uh, she literally came to DevCon because she wanted to start a new career and she's just going to do it. Right. And I, I was, I remember being kind of flabbergasted, right? Because she just showed up here and she was going to make it happen. And now years later, she's working with Salian. She's been a presenter. She's, you know, pretty much a titan in our industry, right? Um, so I have a lot of those personal memories of first-time engagements with with people that, that stick in my head uh, or, you know, things like that. But I, I also, you know, some of the great, I don't know, events we've had. I, I think one of you had mentioned the Jerry Robin and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire down in Florida, right? That was fantastic. Um especially that he did it, right? Because who, who better to win that thing than Jerry? He, he knew every question. It was great. Um, that, was, that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, for what it's worth, little inside secret, uh, the big parties we do at DevCon and Engage are not my thing. I, I'm, a, I'm actually an introvert, right? Those things suck the energy out of me. And uh, so it's, 
it's it's kind of a, a personal struggle. I enjoy them. I love getting that out there and meeting uh, everyone. But man, it takes my energy. So uh, uh, I remember a lot of those uh, in, in sort of that context, right? Um, you know, trying to navigate around, making sure you see everybody and um, that kind of work. I, I'm with you, Andy. I'm absolutely with you. I, every DevCon I go to, I've taken a chess set and I found a table and, and two chairs and I've just sat down with the chessboard open and hoped somebody would come by and play and uh, the rest of it is like, no, I don't want to know. Oh, that's funny. You know, I, I play the game of Go or have throughout my life. That's one of my other side passions, kind of like photography. And um, there was a, a time a number of years back where uh, a number of developers were playing it. And uh, Mark Rubenstein, if you guys remember him, um, and uh, Adam Aronson from Full City Consulting uh, plays a little bit of the game. And so there was a DevCon one year where we all got together and brought Go boards and, and played, and that was kind of fun. It was a great way to kind of get to know each other in a whole different place. You know, Talking about Go, did, have you seen that documentary on Netflix about the AI program that was created by a company in England to play Go against the best player in the world? You know, I haven't seen the documentary yet, Michael, but I, I know the story very well and of the Google DeepMind uh, beating out the world's best pro, you know, in a best of, what was it, seven, I guess, tourney. Um, you know, I used to follow those those great human Go players uh, pretty religiously about I don't know, 15 years ago. And um, at the time, you know, it was like Go was going to be the unsolvable game, right? Like chess itself is, is a pretty tough nut to crack for a computer. Uh, but, you know, IBM had, had done a pretty good job of it. And But Go, the, the number of possible board positions in Go uh, exceeds chess by orders of magnitude. Like there are more possible board positions in the game than there are atoms in the known universe, right? So it, it was that thing where we all believed that Go would be the last holdout of, of human intelligence, right? And then when, uh, when, when Google finally beat it, um, I was depressed for weeks, right? <laughs> it's just terrible. But but at the same time, uh, the story is epic, and there's that one move that the uh, the computer makes uh, in that was it the second or third game uh, that was on the fifth line of the board, and no human no human ever would have ever made that move, and the computer did it. And it just it changed everything. It, it, was it just, did. And yeah, what's you've got to watch the documentary though. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I will. I've read the story uh, in a number of different uh, locations, and that is on my list. So thank you for the call out. I'll do but that. let me tell you what's the most extraordinary thing about that. Do you know how many people were watching that competition? I don't know the answer to that. 85 million people. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, Go is popular in some of the most populous countries in the world. So that makes sense. <laughs> for sure. I remember one of the things that stick out in is the jam sessions that we that we had at DevCon. And the big surprise there was just how many musicians there are who are also FileMaker developers. I mean, it was mind-boggling. When we first did the jam session and sponsored that way back in the day, you know, we were worried, like, is anyone going to actually show up and play? Or, you know, what's going to happen? And it was like we couldn't keep the people down. It was like they were waiting in line to play. That's how many people had capability, you know? It was crazy. It was crazy, and man, they were a lot of fun. Uh, they were loud, but they were a lot of fun. Um, and, and you know, it's funny you, you talk about sort of not expecting there to be such musical talent in the community. But when I was working with Chris Moyer back in the day, one of our interview questions uh, of people that were coming on board is, "What instrument do you play?" Because we found that there was such a high correlation of mus musical artistry to our developer—I you know, don't know—persona or skill set. 
um, that it just became kind of a fun question to ask because more times than not, the answer would come back and, and they, there would, they would have musical talent, right? And then you knew you probably had somebody. Um, I never thought of, you know, database or application development as uh, a corollary to sort of musical learning and creation, right? But they, they are a very similar thing in the way that you approach them and you iterate the success, you practice, you get better, you concentrate and focus. I, I think there's a lot of shared skills uh, between them. Yeah. So, yeah. I, that's what, well, there's, a, there's definitely, I mean, I'm not a musician. I've never played an instrument. The only instrument I play is the fool. But there is a rhythm to farmaker development. Um, and that's the only way I can describe it. And perhaps that's in some way that appeals to the to the musical, because there are so many people who are highly musically talented. I wrote a whole blog article on this and did some research and did some soul searching as to why there seems to be a correlation between developers in general mm -hmm. and music. In fact, in music school, because I went to music school, uh, you know, it wouldn't take long to bump into someone who's also coding. And I, my theory is that when you think about creating code, it's a perfect blend of logic and creativity, and you need both sides of the brain to do it. And mm -hmm. music is the same way. There's a beat and a pattern, and you have to play with the beat, but at the same time, it's very creative. So it's that blend of brain that seems to call out those disciplines. I think it's a great call out. Um... Yeah, we, we, we talked at DevCon of some years ago about the, the workplace innovation platform as a category, but the the, the, the the hero of the story is the problem solver, right? Somebody who's smart and patient and, and likes to solve problems. But as we think about the sort of axes of acumen uh, for that person, uh, there's always a creative aspect, right? I think we talked about innovation there and we defined it on a continuum. We had the fellow come in and, and speak who came from the, uh, the, the Stanford B School. And he was talking about, you know, what is innovation? Well, it's an, a, it's an application of creativity. What is creativity? You know, it's an application of the ability to imagine, right? So it, there's a cycle from imagination to creativity to innovation and then ultimately to entrepreneurship, right? If you take your innovations and you can actually, you know, advance them to uh, scale, right? And, and share your, your innovation with others, right? So um, that, that, that connection of creativity to the technical acumen, uh, we feel is really, really important. So... Great, great observation uh, by you. I'm sorry I didn't see that blog article. I need to go find it. <laughs> All right. I'd also like to maybe drop some names here. Who who were some of the musicians slash filemaker developers you guys played with during the, as I don't think I ever went to one of the jam sessions. Sorry, I apologize, but I'm an introvert also, so. Well, it, it, Jonathan Stars was a FileMaker developer, and, and he would be sort of the ringleader. He would be the lead singer. He would call out the songs, and he would sort of organize everybody. And he did it naturally. You didn't have to ask him. He just did it, and we were happy that someone was doing it because that's what really brought it to, like, people were asking, did you guys rehearse this? Or is, no, no, this is all the first time we've ever played together. This is just a jam session. So Jonathan Stars, uh, Matt Navarre would play bass a lot of the times. Um we had different people on keyboards. I was on keyboards here and there uh, with a lot of singers, uh, drummers. Uh, Vince uh, Manano would play drums. Um, I'm sure guitar players, maybe Andy, you can remember a few too. I, I believe Ray Colligan came out and played guitar at least one year that I saw. Right. Um, you know, at Claris, we've got a lot of musicians as well. And, you know, Eric Frazier and our marketing team, uh, he and uh, Dave Dumas, uh, came uh, to one engage or one DevCon one year, and they were the music, right? They got up on stage and played live uh, in between uh, our demos and stuff, and 
they're they're really really talented um so yeah there's a there's a lot of great musicians and on the singer side um boy maka uh, uh sang uh, i guess the one year we had that fun doing just uh was it the rock band the video game uh, oh, yeah. where we channeled that up on the big uh, screens and and got a bunch of sort of pseudo bands together and and pretended to play music but th it turned out there were a lot of really good singers in the uh in the community dina torok she's a professional she's got an album i mm. think i have that album uh and um she's uh she's great so yeah good isn't talent. um i seem to remember that albert Haram alvarez is a really good piano player am i right did anybody yeah, know I, whether i right I would not be surprised. I think so. <laughs> Albert is a very artistic guy and a very good. Yeah, I love him. He's a very interesting thinker. So yeah. Uh, Jeff Ryle from Jeff Ryle is very much yep. so piano yeah. player and yeah. singer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I told the story at DevCon in one of the keynotes a few years back about uh, one of our opera singers uh, that was in the community and created uh, software to manage uh, all of his gigs and what he sung and and for whom and. Uh, I believe he's still in community and I apologize to him because I'm forgetting his name right now and I'll, I'll need to dig it up. But, uh. So let's move on to presentations at DevCon because they're a very important part of the whole experience. And the one I remember you, cause you was always do, you know, the keynote or not the keynote, but the introduction, the welcome, I forget what you guys call it. Um, and one I remember, and you did this all the time. You come up there and you go do 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 do, and we all go yay. You know, um, that's pretty much what I don't remember. But the one I remember distinctly was the the sorting portals one, where you used uh, tab control object and showed how to hide the tab control. So when you and then had buttons that did go to object, and it would change which portal you were showing, and therefore change what the sort was. I, that for some reason sticks in my mind. I don't know if you guys have a favorite presentation from DevCon, but that was mine. That's what I remember. Wow. That's interesting. I, I vaguely remember doing that. Um, and looking back on it now, I probably apologize to the community for advocating that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that was a good use of the, uh, the relationship graph in the long run, but uh, that was again, one of those uh, places where, you know, you find a new feature and you try and twist it and, and bend it to your will and make it do something kind of, you know, uh, astonishing sometimes right um so uh thanks for the call out on that one um boy i, I so many of my memories are from being on stage um and, and uh, particularly in recent years i don't see as many sessions as i used to but um i remember boy stuff going back to bob cusick uh in one of the early early devcons uh where i believe he was uh riffing about the z order uh, on a layout uh, which affected the order in which calculations would get calculated at that time. And if you did it in the right order, you could, you know, get some interesting effects out of like lookups, right? To force lookups to happen. Uh, essentially, you're creating triggers, right? Based on Z order execution. And um, I don't think any of that's true anymore. But at the time, that was really looking deep at what the platform could do and how it would work, right? So I, I sticks in my mind uh, for that reason. That, that's interesting you mentioned uh, Bob Cusick because I just wrote an article mentioning him and I start off in a long, long, far away, you know, place. He, he was the first guy who did that that single field log. And the reason I remember is because what, what triggered it from what you said was that the order of what you define the fields in made a difference back then. It doesn't now, but back then you had to you had to, to define them in a certain order for it to get that whole thing to work. And when you did, you're like, mm -hmm. wow, that's so cool. 
Yeah, we used to rail about workarounds, right? Everything was a workaround and people hated workarounds. They wanted direct ways to do fix things. And, you know, we, we now largely have all those direct ways to go and go and approach things. Um, but I, I sometimes look back fondly on the ways that we were able to wrestle the product to do things that you didn't really expect it to be able to do. Oh, I think it, it's one of the, I think it's perhaps the one thing that all of us uh, who've been doing it for a very long time indeed, we cut our teeth on finding strange ways to solve strange problems. And we had to be almost geniuses at finding workarounds because you just couldn't do it any other way. Yeah, but I still think that FileMaker has that quality to it. I mean, they've, instead of doing it the Microsoft way, which is put a menu item to do a, one specific thing, like let's say filtering a phone, what Claris has given you throughout the years is the ability to combine features, giving you really deep features like the calculation engine. You can combine that with, you know, a script or you can combine and, and, and you can still do that stuff today. It's not as necessary, but it's still there. And I think it makes FileMaker a really unique platform. I agree with you, John Mark. I think there's some primitives in the platform in the way that data is automatically contextualized for you. So you don't have to do that. And the combination of that, that visual expression of the data, the find mode, the sort, the, you know, there's just, you're putting together um, these, these basic components uh, that, that can really you know, come together to, to build magic. So I guess it's one of the things that I've always loved about the platform and hopefully we don't lose our, our uh, core identity that way, right? Uh, the, the platform retains that. I think it's important. Well, it's always seemed to me that the number one skill any FileMaker developer has to have is the ability to solve problems. That's the most paramount. It's what we do all day long. In order to be really good at that, you've got to really be able to think outside the box. And you need an enormous amount of perseverance. For sure. Uh, you know, it's, it, I, I agree with that one. That's another thing. When I was talking about the, the problem solver and sort of their axes of acumen, if you will, or, or their sort of uh, traits uh, or attributes, um, that, that perseverance is, we believe that's very important, right? There's a, a tenacity uh, that the successful folks in the community have, right? It's creativity, it's the basic technical acumen, but then you got to want to get it done, right? You want to got to advocate sometimes to solve the problem that needs solving. And uh, it's not always easy. And, um, you know, to, to really, that's, that's the bridge between, you know, raw innovation and entrepreneurship, right? If you want to bring business value, um, you got to fight for it sometimes. So, uh, so well yeah. said. Hey, Mark, oh, yes. any, any, presentations that that yeah, stuck in your been mind a couple over the years? one that featured Andy do you recall Andy you had a presentation where you showed a bunch of squares on a screen and you turned it into a race <laughs> yes yeah. yes i remember that i use that all the time <laughs> a race Wait, what did i turn a it race into? where the boxes were following each other in this pattern like a maze oh you know i i, I think that one was sourced from bob bowers i think he gave me that trick um yeah, what what was it? Was it we containers were or there? was it um, something about position on a layout? Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, man, I'm sorry. My my brain is uh, is fried right now. But um, that was a few years back. But yeah, I think Bob Bowers uh, gave me the idea for that one. And um, yeah, but I never forgot that. Decided to have some fun with it. So. And as much as I, uh, that's okay. great. <laughs> no, I was going to say, as much as I love your presentations, I also enjoy the ones from Clay. Uh, the, the, the geekism of those presentations, uh, I am on the edge of my seat um, almost on every little thing that he's describing about the under the hood stuff. So, you know, never to be missed. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, there you're talking about the guy that thinks deeply about uh, the the sort of core architecture and how things uh, play together. And he uh, certainly is a vision uh, that has been with us for so long uh, that, uh, yeah, it's just a great repository in terms of his knowledge and, and the history, historical context. And, everything. and um, he's, he's great. Yes, that'd be great. Now, I did see Jonathan Thatcher at the last Clarison Gage, his head poke poked up and he said, hey, look, I'm not here. I'm just coming out of retirement for a project. Can you speak to any involvement that he still has or? You know, that was actually, believe it or not, that was a surprise to me as well. I didn't realize that we had engaged him and that uh, we were going to bring him back and have him uh, help present and engage and and, and give Mm -hmm. a little bit of his uh, his perspective on things. But John is one of the all-time greats in the company and we love him. And uh, so I was, I was as happy and as surprised, I think, as anybody in the audience. Uh, sure was. He was able yeah. to join. That was a great moment. The yeah. other, uh, no, so those, those are my biggest yeah. takeaways from all the dev code. Oh, and one last thing. You guys remember they had a comedian one year. His name was Don McMillan. He was a technology comedian. I think that was at a DevCon, if I'm not mistaken. I think I do remember him. Um, He's not the guy who uh, dropped an. F-bomb I know. I don't think it was him. No, I think that was another person. Okay, there was another one we had where he was really great. Oh, yeah, and no, I don't he think just it was really that. turned everybody off. I was like, so. Well, the, the funniest, <laughs> funniest presentation I ever saw at any DevCon was Chris Manton talking about interface design, and I don't know whether you saw it, Andy, but he was hysterically funny. I was not present for that one, but I heard about it, and uh, he was just hysterically funny, right? He was just yeah, a he was really a great guy. So, great yeah. guy. Very sad that he got cancer and died so young. Yeah, I really enjoyed Chris uh, very, very much. And speaking of which, man, what a great loss. And I don't mean great in a positive sense, but what a great loss uh, with Shin this past year, um, who I believe Shin Nainagawa's birthday was two days ago. Um, so we really miss her. She was a great, great do you want platform. to share any stories about her? Because that's one of the things we want to talk to you about was her commitment to the FileMaker market and her impact. I mean, uh, you know, I, I kind of sit in my little office here and don't talk to very many people, but she would always reach out to me and, and try to, you know, to see what's going on. I, I don't know a lot about her and I'd like to hear more stories if you had one um, that you yeah, you know, in, in stature, she was not a very large human, but in uh, presence and and uh, in, in, I don't know, her legend, right, is enormous because she was just everywhere. Uh, one of the amazing things is I think she came to more North American events than than even I have, right? She was always uh, present and um, she was a terrific advocate for the platform and, and for uh, Japan, right? Like as she was traveling the world, um, she was a, a tireless advocate for Japanese culture. And um, I remember going to, I think it was a pause on error event in Portland and she took me out for sushi and was which I love, right? I've been to Japan a half dozen times or so, and um, I'm a big fan of, of Japanese food of all stripes. But uh, we went out for for a nice dinner there, and she was teaching me some of the cultural nuance and, and how we eat. And you know, she was just uh, very, very genuine, and and she was always very um, uh, welcoming and supportive of uh, visitors from from the Americas going over there too. I, I've been to Tokyo on a number for a number of events, and she'd always make a point to to reach out and uh, you know make sure you're you're in a good place and take you out to dinner, whatever it took. Um, she also has helped so many partners in the community localize their software into Japanese and market it in the Japan uh, market. And our Japan market is extremely vibrant, right? It's a fantastic uh, country and, 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 and business opportunity for us. And um, she's a big part of it. So 
Um, do you re- yeah, very, very. Do you very remember doing back it. when they changed the box art? I think it was FileMaker 3.0. Um, we've changed it a number of times, but we definitely changed it. For yeah, 3.0, well, you so remember yeah. it was that kind of fancy. Before that, it was that kind of watercolored thing, or there was like a black outline and then a swash of color. Right. Well, right. The, it, it just came to me because there's all these stories in my head, but the Japanese boxes stayed the same. They didn't go to the yellow foul cabinet looking thing because they loved oh, it funny. so much. That's how important the Japanese right. market is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Our, our marketing team over there, um, they do act, uh, they're part of our marketing team and I get to see them twice a week. And uh, I love working with our Japan office, some of the best employees we have. Um, and they get to do some things independently sometimes because their market is so concentrated um, that they need to do things a little differently. They came up with a fantastic ad a bunch of years ago uh, for television, right? And it's not something that we can really entertain here in the States because we're or other parts of the world because we're just so geographically dispersed to hit one market and get enough uh, you know, return on that. It just doesn't generally work. Uh, but over there, you know, where they can hit Tokyo and one or two of the big cities, uh, it did work. And so, yeah, they, they do some amazing things over there and go their own way sometimes. And, and that's just fine. We love it. Do you, do you remember the one and only Claris ad that was on primetime television in North America? Do you remember that, Andy? I don't think there I was do. a little dog chasing his tail. And they were saying, don't oh. be this, get Claris FileMaker. And it, if somehow got on national tele, I still have it on my website. You can download it. Uh, it's really grainy, That's but awesome. it, it was, it somehow there was a favor, something involved, or there was an opening and they couldn't pass it up. And they, they played that commercial. And I thought it was just such an interesting thing with that dog chasing his tail. It, it, it was, they only had, it was only like maybe 10 seconds long or 20 seconds. And, and, but right. the whole chasing, are you, you know, was just, it, it really, uh, they, I think they got a lot of bang for their buck on that one. Cause it was really well done. I thought. Oh, really interesting. I, you know, funny enough, you're not the, it, strangely as coincidence would have it. Um, Richard Carlton sent me a clip of that ad uh, this week. Um, and, uh, and I was trying to figure out where that was coming from. So you've given me better context. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, uh, I think uh, one question I really want to ask you, because I think because of your, your breadth of knowledge of the market um, and, you know, there's been a lot of uh, desire to get, you know, new FileMaker developers into the market, uh, you know, I'm retiring probably in the next five years. I mean, a lot of people are, are, you know, we want to get this new fresh and and to some degree that's happening. But for for anybody who's listening, who's a budding FileMaker developer, just starting their business, anything, you know, anything in the whole realm of things, what what recommendations would you give them, Andy? Anything come to mind? Yeah, uh, that's that's, that's a great question, John Mark. And I think it's a it's an important one. And I think there's a community responsibility to to uh, to help this, right? Because um, you're not alone. Like a lot of us have been around for a couple, two, three decades, and um, you know th- there are a lot of fresh faces coming into our our space and our community. There's going to be more. We're, I think we have a a great you know intention and business plan to to grow, and, and our marketplace is growing around us. So, um, how do we absorb you know new people and, and give them the opportunities that that we were afforded? Um, you know, I think back uh, to myself and one of the great life's lessons uh, that, that I picked up along the way is find mentors, right? Find somebody that you can trust to help guide you on your path. Um, you know, I was a pretty brash, smart kid coming out of school, but I was, there's a lot I regret. Like I would go back and, and give myself some humility if I could. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you, you learn by getting people that have been down the path ahead of you. 
uh, can give you some guidance. Um, I still find this to be the case, right? I'm, I'm picking up new roles and responsibilities with the company, and I have people that have been around a long time that guide me uh, and, and give me, you know, direction and, and help me be better, right? And so, uh, you know, I think with the maturity we have, um, whether the questions are about the technology and how I get better at it, you know, okay, if that's it, get into community, find people that, that you can trust and know and will you know, work with you and, and they will guide you along. You, you know that, right? This community is so supportive. On the business side, if you're trying to make a buck, right? There's a lot of other people in your similar shoes that may be a couple of years ahead of you. Um, again, get into community, figure out who that, you know, who those folks are, introduce yourself, build relationships and find mentors. Uh, even outside, I think of our community, um, I have uh, I have a lot of friends that I, I live near that I respect uh, deeply that work for you know great companies in the Atlanta area and I learn from them as well and I, I pick mentors uh, to help me along the way so um, you know, that that's sort of the one thing that j- jumps out at me immediately I, I hope that's a reasonable yeah answer. I think Mark's mentoring somebody right now how how long does that take you a week I mean it's not that much time is it No it's it's not that and you can make it the schedule for the person. You know, you can make the schedule between the two of you. Um, in fact, I just got a notification yesterday that the w- woman in- innovating together has a, they have a partnership uh, with another organization and they are doing a mentorship, mentee, mentor program. Uh, we'll put a link in the in the show notes for that as well. That, that would be great. Yeah. WIT, I think, is one of the best things uh, about our community at large. Um you know, there's a collection of people that are committed to the platform and professional development and, um, you know, have done so much good in, in connecting people to the, the community and engage in other things. So uh, that's uh, that's a great call out. OK, well, let's let's switch to a certification exam. It's changed recently where it's non version specific. And I think everybody is standing up and applauding because I don't want to memorize all that stuff I can just simply Google, you know, like how many users can I have on FileMaker server, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, so it, it should cut down a lot on that, I would imagine. But can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what this whole certification exam is about? Uh, did you play any part in the formation of it? Uh, you know, again, why did it change? Uh, you know, why is it two years, not three years? Things like that. I'm just curious about the whole, I think everybody's curious about this whole new exam thing because, you know, we're, it's it's going to be brand new. So, Yeah, yeah, brand new and, and not brand new, I guess, at some level. I mean, the, the, um, the, the real trigger uh, for the change uh, is that, you know, with our product and the platform, the way we're delivering it, well, well, that's changing, right? So I- instead of doing the the annual to 18-month release uh, schedule with a, a waterfall planning model, um, that the platform will be evolving more dynamically, right? We're, we are fully functioning as an agile company. We've agile, agile transformed every department. Uh, you know, sales and marketing are agile just like the product teams are. And, um, you know, as a result, uh, and you can see the evidence this past year, I, I think I was doing a count recently and there were over 60 uh, releases to market from the Claris, uh, you know, company uh, over the last 12 months, right? So we're releasing five times a month. The product's improving continuously. You know, it's really hard to pick a moment in time and build a, a test around a version, right? It doesn't make sense anymore. So it really is about uh, building a, a test that kind of dynamically uh, parallels the, the product as we evolve it forward. And so um, then the question is, well, if you pass it, how long is it relevant and accurate. Like uh, I passed it and I come back a year later, 
Um, is that still reflective of my skill with the platform? And a year later, the answer is pretty much yes. Um, two years later, probably. Um, three years later, maybe not. Right, a lot can happen in three years. So. Um, I, I don't want to say that's the reason we picked two years, John Mark. We, we also looked a lot at the, uh, the marketplace and how other uh, competitors and peers were doing their certification exams and, and timing. And this notion of a, a sort of living exam that you re-up every couple of years is pretty consistent. Some companies do do it on a one-year cycle. Some do it on a three-year cycle. Um, we, we thought the balance in between would be a good place to, uh, to start at least. And we'll test it, see how it works and get feedback and uh, and, uh, you know, if, it, if it's wrong, we'll, we'll optimize it later, but we think a two-year schedule would work pretty well, so. And today is the last day for your ability to take the FileMaker 18 test, I believe. Is it today? I guess you're right if I'm looking at the date. I think today is the last date for the 18. And the 18, of course, passing that is perpetual, right? You get to keep that number forever. Uh, that, that unfortunately goes away, but, you know, we think a, a living test over time is going to is going to work well. And, and the funny thing is the, the test itself, it, we won't be updating it every two years. We're going to be updating it continuously. So, you know, as you pass it, it should be very relevant and topical to the platform that's that's in market, right? And um, we think that'll be a good thing. And funny enough, I, I, I've actually been associated with the certification exam over the years um, and, and helped as subject matter expert in, in some versions of it, uh, you know, creating questions and building it and, and learning about the psychometrics behind exam, you know, taking and passing. And, you know, it's a very interesting animal, but we're very proud of it, right? Our exam uh, on the numbers, it, it is extremely, um, what's the word, uh, uh, accurate. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is a lot of people struggle with it because it doesn't follow a model that, at least in the U.S., we, we learn when we go to school where you get graded on a scale and you can get an ABCD, you know, score or something. It really isn't intended to be that at all. It really is a simple cut. Are you, did you pass or didn't you? And so the sort of ideal abstract model would be about a 50% uh, question success means means a pass, right? Um, but we, it's it's not quite that grueling, <laughs> but it's pretty close. So I know a lot of people come out of the exam and they're like, man, I got so many questions wrong. I don't even know how I passed. I still feel depressed, right? Uh, but ho hopefully that that shouldn't be the, the, the actual feeling people have. Passing should be something that really indicates um, a capability with the platform and that people can be proud of and, and badge around and, and help advance their career with. Um, and uh, with this new exam, since we'll be dynamically changing it, we'll actually be able to test uh, statistically the, um, the relevance and accuracy of the questions. So it, it won't just be about uh, are the questions written well, but maybe a question that's been around for more than two years, maybe it gets stale. Everybody learns it and they know it's going to be on the exam and we have to take it off. So it's performance you know, degrades over time because people are getting it right. Even people that would fail the test uh, a lot, you know what I'm saying? So statistical validation, it comes back by the folks that take the test and, uh, and it, it's almost self-healing, if you will. Uh, so I'm excited for the test to see where it goes. And um, if it works really well and we get to expand our platform and do other things, maybe we'll try other certifications, which we've been thinking about for many I wanted to sh I wanted to share something with you, Andy, and and with people here on the audience. So the la and this harkens back to what Michael was saying about lifelong learning, and even after thirty some odd years of working in FileMaker, you still learn stuff. Well, in the last three weeks, I've been preparing a two hundred sample question course at Productive Computing University to further assist people uh, with the I, the notion of what you need to study and how hard it is. And this goes along with our existing course, uh, FileMaker Certification Preparation. So I, you know, I've taken the test every every year since uh, FileMaker 7. I've never not passed. 
And I always study 20 to 40 hours before every test. That's just part of my rule book. And after all of that, I'm still reading stuff and learning stuff that, oh, I can't believe I didn't know that, you know? And it's just crazy. But uh, we're looking forward to that 200 questions to help people uh, give some semblance of preparation um, education, you know? Well, I can. I can 100 support, uh, 100% uh, support what you're saying that when you actually write a test and you're trying to write questions that have an objective and absolute correct answer and well-constructed plausible distractors, right? Because you can't make the, the wrong answers uh, tricky and you can't make them obviously wrong. You have to really get something. It, there is an art to it, uh, but part of that art is knowing the ins and outs of everything that you are testing around. You have to, you have to test the question in so many different ways to make sure that you're accurate and, and objective oh. and have it right. Right. It's a difficult thing. And, um, I, oh, no. I, I don't envy it's you taken a lot longer than easy. I thought it would. <laughs> oh, you do. Oh, you do. But you do learn, totally, you learn things oh, you never God. thought you would need and you probably never need, <laughs> but you know, you learn a lot. There have been some questions over the years that went to, uh, specifications, you know, um, and a lot of people did, uh, not like those uh, because they felt like memorization questions, but the intent originally on those kind of questions was that we wanted developers sitting across the table, specking out a solution for a customer to know what was possible, right? And, and so we wanted a developer to be able to say, yeah, you, you've got 700 users in this sort of format, blah, blah. You know, it wasn't going to work because the server wouldn't handle it or something, right? And uh, so they, it, they weren't there to, uh, to, to force sort of memorization. It really was supposed to be, does the person know the platform well enough to, to spec out a solution uh, credibly and, and not convince a customer to go into a project that was going to fail from the start? Now, that said, yes, a lot of that stuff can be Googled and... Um, Therefore, I think in the current exam, we're taking most of those out. The, the other thing is there were very few of those questions, right? That was when you do the job task analysis and you balance out what you want to test, there's a massive weighting toward calcs and scripts and their application. And uh, the, the, the sort of specs questions were a very, very small percentage of the overall questions, but they do tend to be the ones people remember. Um, and then you know, to John Mark's comment, I, I kind of agree with you, John Mark, the, 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 the application questions that go around calcs and scripts and uh, you know, relational modeling. Some of them are just difficult because to get to the objective uh, measure that I was talking about before, you really can't be, it's really hard to get the language right. And sometimes you've just got to use a lot of words. And so some of those questions are, are difficult to get through. It takes a while to read it, understand what's being, being uh, tested. Um, but if you have the experience, uh, you're going to know the answer, right? And so, um, and, and again, some of them are hard, right? We, we set up the questions so that there's a, uh, the, the sort of metaphorical concept of a, a high jump bar, right? And you want every question to be at the same height. You don't want some questions to be super difficult and some to be super easy. They should all be at roughly the same difficulty. Um, and so that, that a user isn't, you know, kind of ping ponging back and forth and throw, you know, phoning in some and really struggling with others. That's not the point. Again, a perfect abstract thing. 50% of the questions would or 50% of the questions is all you need to pass, but every question has the same difficulty. And if you're the person that's borderline, you're going to get 50%. If you're a person who's a Jedi, you'll get 100%. If you're not, you'll get less or whatever. Uh, but the, the percentage doesn't, in the end, really matter. It's just sort of trying to figure out what that cut score should be. So anyway, sorry to go long on this. It, it is a fun topic, though. So maybe for another day. 
Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that, you know, we, we interviewed uh, Rick Coleman and Robert Holsey. We interviewed, um, we're interviewing you right now. We interviewed Brad Freitag a couple of months ago. And, and I think this speaks to, we might not have been able to do this a couple of years ago. And I think this speaks to Clarissa's openness to feedback. And which leads me into my next question, our, our next question, which is, can you talk a little bit about ShareVoice and its goal? Uh, what what the purpose of it is, um, you know, just for the audience who may not be familiar with this whole this whole meeting that occurs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the uh, the the share voice uh, was set up uh, by our partner team to uh, give people a forum where they could come back and um, and present on questions or or provide feedback around our business or the technology or anything really, um, and it was just to get something on a monthly cadence. Uh, with the community to to receive that feedback. Um, I think it's, in its original conception, it was mostly like we would listen and be able to sort of at least confirm that, okay, we get the problem, we're taking it, right? Um, there's always a, a delicate dance in, in what you can promise, but I think they've gotten more conversational in recent months, which I think is important um, because, you know, we really don't have anything to hide and, and I think we'll take any feedback um, even if we don't agree with it, right? And so... Um, yeah, the share voice is just a, it is, is one sort of web webinar sort of style event that allows people uh, generally with some pre-prepared questions to come in and present them. Uh, yeah, having that presentation uh, model does force something, which is uh, for people to not just riff and, and, I don't know, sort of get wound around an axle on something that they're really angry about or who knows what, right? But to put, put some thoughtful slides together about a topic and um, then present it to us so we can receive it and, and understand it. And uh, I think that's been pretty effective. Um, my only problem with it is the name. I don't love the name. I want to change it to something else, but um, we'll do that eventually. <laughs> but uh, I, I attend them every other month at least. And uh, I know the product team comes in as well because a lot of the interest from the community is, is about product. Um, so I think we'll keep this running for a while. And now that I have community, I'm, I'm looking for other ways that we can uh, engage on a consistent basis uh, on our community forums and, and elsewhere. And uh, we'll see how that goes, John Mark. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So I'm glad you guys are doing it. Um, I, I can't say enough about it. I just want to, the audience to know that you guys are, are more open than ever, I think. Um, you know, coming on the show, doing things like that. There's all kinds of ways you guys are listening. And so, I mean, you can even go on to the, to the and this has been there for a while, onto the community uh, forums and post a suggestion there. And people can comment on it. It's, it's it's really cool. It's just a place specifically for that for new features in FileMaker. So I mean, you guys have are opening up. It's it's sometimes not easy to, but you guys are doing a, a great job at that. So thanks. Yeah, I think with, with the agile um, sort of transformation of the company, um, one thing that we can share pretty consistently is intent, right? Because we're always driving towards some North Star concept, whether it's with the product or marketing programs or I don't know, what, whatever the sales team is doing in a given quarter or year. Um, and we can easily talk around those things. There, there are definitely places where, you know, getting into specifics about a feature and its direction or, hey, there's this bug, when are you going to fix it? You know, I think we'll communicate those as best we can. There's definitely improvement that we can make in how we uh, do so. Um, but uh, we want to be transparent. Um, I, I think it's really important. Uh, and not just because of our agile transformation. It's just, it's so easy to be in touch with each other, with the community at large, that there's no reason we can't talk. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll figure out you know, better and better ways to do this going forward, too. Yeah, I've enjoyed the share voice meetings. And I like the ping pong between 
you know, the traditional business topics versus the product topics. Cause I think both are important. And, uh, yeah, you bet. I mean, as a partner, you care that we market well and that we execute as a business well, right? I mean, we, we are so interdependent. Um, and I think Brad may have expressed this when he was here with you, but, um, you know, lest there be any ambiguity, we live and die by our partner community and our, and our community at large, our developers, right? Uh, we, we don't provide services. Uh, the end customer never gets anything from us but what you guys deliver, right? So um, we, we have a, a, a symbiosis that's, that's absolutely critical and our partner and community at large are, are both high on our uh, executive backlog, i.e. what is most important to the company. Um, so uh, I, I hope we execute well on that, that promise and intent. Yeah, now better than ever, I'll say. Awesome. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very important point that you made, Andy, that, that, File or Claire, I call, sorry if I call it FileMaker. I've, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, Claris is his his one you know has better understood this connection between the developer and the company because I can tell you a little story uh, and I probably have told it before. I'm old. I tell these stories on the podcast. I've probably said it three times, but it seems really you know important here is that I was at MacWorld way back when FileMaker. Uh, uh, would go, you know, be present there, have a booth and stuff like that. I don't even know if Macworld's around anymore, but, um, but I remember being in the room with, I think his name is Zoltan. Is that? And he said, okay, you guys, you had, there was like four or five of us or uh, half a dozen or something, whoever's in San Francisco. When I was one of them, he said, I want you guys to write down how big the developer market is, how much money, are they bringing in? And everybody lowballed, and I said it's more than than what Claris is making. I think that the developers represent a bigger market. And he was just didn't he couldn't unfathom it, didn't understand it. I said, look, here's the math. You take you know these guys making let's say fifty thousand dollars a year, that a bare minimum, multiplying that by how many developers I considered out there, it's more than what you guys is like twice as much. And, and I think, I think Claris is now understanding how important the developer market is on an, on a very uh, essential level and appreciating what we do for the market. And, and I commend you guys for that. And thank you. Well, for sure. For sure. You know, I, I think I could have argued in 1992 that FileMaker was a productivity app, right? Um, I don't think I can make that argument today, right? It is a professional tool set and we need professionals that deliver the, the final result, right? And so, um, yeah, there, there's there's no situation where we can uh, survive without our community. And um, yeah, you, you came at that math in a different way than I would, John Mark. But yeah, I definitely think there's a massive multiplier uh, on the economy of our community uh, over our revenue base. And it should be that way. It absolutely should be that way. So, well, you yeah, got to totally figure in sense. not just the professional developers, but all the guys who are working uh, in-house and maybe doing an odd project here and there and, and all those things add up. So, um, But yeah, it, it, on this one, I would say my, my take is that uh, all of those are probably professional developers, right? I mean, this this is a tool set for folks that, that uh, fix serious problems in business. And um you know, yes, you can build lightweight things. There's no two ways about it. Some developers would be probably self-effacing and say, no, no, I'm not really that great. But that's not true. You know, you, it's, I, I feel like this is a platform for real crafts persons uh, who solve real business problems. And um, so I, I mean professional developer, not just in someone who sells consulting services, but I, I think we all have an element of, uh, of just it's skill. 
right? We know we're, we are the carpenters, we're the plumbers, we're the, we're the work people who get it done. So uh, that's where I'm coming from when I say uh, professional low code, uh, if you will. <laughs> so we mentioned Claris Engage before. Uh, it's, it's virtual, essentially. Um, it last year, I think was a success. Um, but there's always stuff to learn, right? And so it's going to be virtual again this year, 2021. I, I you know, people are out there. Should I, should I spend the time, you know, engaging with the Claris Engage? Uh, tell us what you learned from the first virtual DevCon and, and how the second one's going to be different than the first one. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, Engage last year was was going to be Engage even before it was virtual, right? We did rebrand it uh, along with the, the company name. And, you know, again, sort of one of the most valuable things that we get out of that event every year is the engagement, right? So the, the name was kind of intentional. It's we get together and we get energized with each other. We learn from each other. And, it, it you know, for, for guys like me that are have been in the sort of evangelism seat for, for so long, um, you know, engage every year is my new year's, right? It's where my year starts and ends. And, uh, so it's, it's just a very important anchor for what we do. Um, so last year, then something happened, right? We had a pandemic and, um, it became pretty clear as, you know, normally we make all the major decisions on the event, uh, you know, in the spring timeframe. And that was just about that time when there was all the uncertainty as to how far is this thing going to happen? And I forget when it was mid-March, I guess we finally made the call that, yeah, no, uh, we're not getting together. That's not happening. And so we, we shifted gears pretty quickly uh, to the online format. And because of kind of the late warning, um, we, we didn't have time to really go adopt some, you know, new virtual platform and uh, try and, I don't know, present a, a you know, pretend in-person event. Right. Uh, and so w- what we did instead is just pretty simple. We lined up a couple days of, you know, content and and we were trying to focus on, at least I was driving for uh, personally in the company. I was like, you know, why do I go to, to DevCon or Engage? I go there to hear smart people talk about things that I haven't thought about. Right. And so rather than, um, making the live content last year, uh, technical presentations that were sort of one to many, we just decided let's go find people that are thought leaders and get them in a room talking to each other, kind of like you and I we're doing right now. Right. And I want to go hear smart people talk. That's what I want to do. So we, we lined up a bunch of panels and, um, and then the community did something pretty magical, right? Uh, Proofgeist, or I guess Todd Geist at the time, uh, helped drive uh, AutoEnter and put together a public Slack forum uh, so that people could get together and chat. And we had two days of content, and the community came together, and uh, hundreds of people you know, hung out on, the, on that Slack uh, channel and were talking to each other. And, and it was really, really amazing. Um, I think it was successful. I think the content was good, but... Also, that 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 lift, that support from the community uh, to me was it just knocked me out. Right, I was like, it wouldn't have been as good without it, uh, and it showed again, kind of, and this mutual um, thing that we've got, the symbiosis that that these things come together. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it was a success, John Mark. We we did learn a lot uh, from that event about doing virtual things, um, and then you know, roll forward to this year, and here we are still with some uncertainty. I think. You know, most Americans right now are pretty bullish on on you know, the the road ahead uh, related to the pandemic. Um, I've been twice vaccinated now for a, a while, and um, you know it's great to be able to go outside and not wear your mask all the time and all that. And, and we look forward to getting together. I think I mentioned earlier getting together with Martha and Chrissy um, a couple of weeks ago, and that was amazing, right? Uh, could we pull it off this year in person? 
maybe. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look around the world and uh, see what's happening in some other countries and it just doesn't seem feasible to uh, to, to make that happen or, or take that gamble. Right. And so, um, again, we're kind of we made a, a late shift and, and went to virtual. And um, uh, but but this time it's like, well, the world is different now a year later. Right. Uh, I think some of the fuel that brought us together last year was the ingrained expectation, right? The, the behavior pattern that we had had that we get together every year for a couple of days and we hang out with each other, right? And so everybody was very willing to come and, and park on Slack and talk to each other and hang out. I mean, people from the Far East and Australia were coming in at midnight and, and staying with the event till eight or 9 a.m. their time, right? It was crazy um, and it was awesome. But we sort of feel like now that we've been together all year and we've been Zooming and we've been WebExing and whatever tool you choose to use, and we're doing that full time all the time, um, that it, it was unfair to kind of expect people to show up and, and camp out for days like that. Would people do it? Yes, absolutely. People would do it. Would everybody do it? No, it wouldn't happen. Um, and so we decided to kind of take it and, and break it apart and spread it out. Now that changes things, right? Um, it fundamentally changes it because, you know, we won't have a concentrated event. Um, and so we, we know that, that that changes things. But at the same time, we think it'll be a little easier to digest. And in my mind, it opens up the, the idea uh, to become something new and ongoing. If we get good at it in a continuous fashion, we can take the elements that we've learned uh, from ShareVoice and the elements that we've learned from doing webinars for years and the things that we learned from doing conversations like the one we're having right now and from doing panels like we did last year and let's package those up and do them on a, a, a regular basis, right? Let's get together in a continuous fashion. Does that replace Engage or DevCon? In my mind, the answer is no. I think it's something different. And um, and to wit, we are going to come back together in 2022. Our stated goal is to have a physical conference. We're going to do it in Nashville uh, here in the States, which is great for me. Quick drive. Um, and, uh, and, and we will continue to do those in-person events. But meanwhile, wouldn't it be cool if we can augment... Uh, those things with greater transparency and communication and have an ongoing branded, you know, thing. Uh, and, and we'll use Engage to do that over time. So um, we'll do a kickoff uh, probably in a, a few weeks or months whenever we can get this uh, thing uh, cooked up and, and get it right. And we'll do things where we bring out Brad and, and you know, other execs and we can do Ask Me Anythings and we can do panel conversations and we are open to other creative ideas where we can, you know, get together with the community. So I'm going very long here, but uh, I think the, the, um, to the, the TLDR on this one is it is something new. Uh, we are going after it in a fairly agile fashion. Uh, we're going to learn from it, tune it, make it better. But I think there's an enormous opportunity uh, if we get this right to have a really cool new thing, which with an ongoing communication channel around the engaged branding. So no, no, that was perfect. That was I. That was <laughs> I was hanging on every word. I I love how much you thought about what you're going to say about this and and how clear it comes across. So great. I mean. Um, I hope it's, and I think you, you did ask the question, like people want to know how to participate. You know, I think we do want to do technical content, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you want to think of it as like, uh, okay, we didn't get together this year, but I have a session I want to share, do it, tell us, right? Like give us a, give us a submission and, um, we will be evaluating submissions to either do live or do in a, in a on-demand fashion. Either way, I think the audience for, for that content will be pretty large, um, and, and I think it's a great chance to share with the community. So I hope people will do that like they have every year. Um, and we'll parse those out and deliver them as best we can. 
And I think other ideas around thought leadership, you know, if we got groups uh, like I, I have talked to some of the leadership from the women in technology um, about, you know, ways we can get uh, their leadership and in, in, uh, coordinate together, you know, the, the ideas for some potential content or discussions. And we'll see where that goes or not. Um, but uh, but yeah, we absolutely we absolutely need and want a community involvement. So open to many ideas, my email. And, and of course, we, we have the submission stuff on the community, but we're, we're always open to ideas. So thank you. And Andy, do you think it'll be a healthy combination of uh, pre, pre-recorded videos as well as live presentations? You know, I think so. I hope so. Um, I think live has its own uh, benefit. And, you know, when we can have a conversation like this and it's, it's not pre-recorded and it feels, well, I guess it is, but I think we're, we're acting in a very conversational live fashion here. And um, I would love for that to be the case. There's an energy in this kind of, um, uh, not practiced conversation, right? That, that's very important and, and authentic. Uh, so yeah, I think we'll do live content um, and I think we'll do pre-recorded. I, I, I have attended several conferences over the last uh, few months and I will tell you that um, they were fairly miserable experiences online and um, I didn't get a whole lot of the content and a lot of what I did get to, I got to in an on-demand fashion after it was originally cast. Um, so we'll, we'll need a blend of, of both things for sure. And hopefully we won't make, hopefully we won't make a miserable experience. <laughs> we'll try not to. <laughs> I think that um, the you know when you're having these virtual conferences, the people who are presenting, if they're presenting live or semi-live, they have to be really good dynamic presenters to keep the audience involved, and that's very hard to do. It, it is a talent for sure. Um, I, I think you're right, because um, uh, yeah, some of the things I've seen some very interesting presentations, very poorly delivered uh, this year. Uh, but that said, I, I don't want to sound discouraging to anyone who might be listening and, and is interested uh, in in you know working with us. Uh, we've had new faces that have come to us over the years and shown up at at our DevCon, who have been fundamentally amazing, right? And uh, we need we need those new faces and voices. So. Uh, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. We want people to bring their A game, but I, I think uh, people can do it well and have fun with it. And I hope that's the case. So, uh, yep. Andy, do you remember uh, Tammy Pipkin? I do remember Tammy. Yeah, Tammy and I used to travel together when she was in the sales team. You bet. Yeah, she. I used to host her uh, her educational section on the Database Pros website. That was years and years ago, where they just sent me the stuff and I put it up there, and people could download it. Um, but the reason I mention her is because, you know, I don't think Claris has focused on the education market much since that. I mean, Tammy was all about it. She was just a go-getter and doing everything. And, and, and now all of a sudden you guys are interested in education again, or, or it just appears that way. How about we say that? You've always, obviously educational market has always been gigantic for, for FileMaker. Um, but now you've got the Claris Connect for schools and, and stuff. And I'm just interested in you, your, your thoughts on it and whatever you want to say about this, this new, you know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I, we're really excited about this, John Marks. So I appreciate you asking around it. Um, you know, I think if, if I look over the, the 30 odd years of trajectory, the, the platform and company have had um, the emphasis on K-12 as a specific vertical to, to you know, work with has you know changed in, in in focus and weight but the same can be said for Apple or any company I believe um, and um, 
but it, that said, consistently, K-12 has always been a very vigorous market uh, for our platform. And uh, so that that really has never changed. How we go to market and, and chase it and that we have sales teams that, that are specific to K-12 or not, you know, those things come and go. Um, but um, but yeah, K-12 remains uh, fundamentally at one of the sort of anchor uh, uh, communities for, for our platform. And, and then that said, um, the, the opportunity that we have that's currently happening is we launched a new product, if you will, uh, that's kind of an existing product, but in a new uh, packaging, and, and it's called Connect for ASM. So we launched Claris Connect, which is an integration platform as a service, uh, and um, we've had that out for now a while. Um, but we came to an opportunity, and this goes to our earlier conversation about you know the advantages of working with Apple, and um, we we discovered that Apple uh, was you know looking for a way to simplify a portion of their delivery of the Apple School Manager and the school tools that they provide for educators. Right, Apple delivers a lot of uh, devices and computers into education. And of course, one of the big tasks then that the ed educators have is how do they provision all those devices and computers for students? And, you know, some schools will do it on a one-for-one -one model where they'll give every student a device and they have it for the year. Other schools will do it where they have devices in a classroom and throughout the course of a day, the devices need to have different logins for different students, right? Uh, so they're shared devices. And all that stuff is sorted out by virtue of uh, the Apple platform, Apple School Manager, which is a great, great tool set. Um, but to make it work, you have to get all your student data and roster information into Apple School Manager. That's the rub, right? In the marketplace, there are dozens and dozens of school um, student information systems. And um, they all uh, will work in varying degrees against you know, standards of data interoperability. But in various standards, of course, the, the real answer is it's, it's really difficult to, to do. And so what ends up happening in a lot of schools is they will dump out of their student information systems giant CSV files, right? And they'll have all the SIS data. And then it's incumbent on somebody in ISNT to bring that data into Apple School Manager if they want to use it to make their iPads work better. And um, it's hard work. So interconnect, right? Claris Connect is made for this. So we uh, did a, a sprint over the last, uh, sprint is the wrong word in the Agile context, but we, we quickly uh, developed up connectors for uh, three of the more popular student information systems. And um, we put those in place now so that uh, schools that have Apple School Manager can actually get access to Claris Connect for ASM for free. Um, Apple's essentially, you know, helping finance that and, and, and we're helping finance that so that schools get it free of charge and it takes about 15 minutes to set up. And then the integration of the school information system into ASM is instantaneous, right? It saves a truckload of work for those schools. And we're super excited about it because it, it proves what a scalable cloud uh, as, uh, um, software as a service product can do in our portfolio in the ability to deliver it in such a way that it benefits Apple, it benefits Apple's customers, and ultimately gets the Claris brand into new schools that, that may or may not use FileMaker yet. Uh, and then secondarily, we think now that we're working with those schools, we're, like you said, John, we've been at school for 30 years. Schools that don't yet know us, they have an opportunity to then learn about FileMaker, uh, get connected with, with ASM using our Connect platform, and then who's this Claris? Oh, they have this FileMaker product. What's that about? And then we can, we can help share with them uh, the platform. And so we're really excited about it as a business opportunity, and, um, but also as a proof for uh, what we're doing with our product strategy. And, uh, and we think it's going to just mean you know, loads of difference to lots of schools out there. So we're very excited. 
Yeah, it builds an automatic case success story. For sure. For sure. And it is so easy and inexpensive for a school to adopt. And, and you know, I've talked to a lot of uh, district IT managers uh, over the course of the last year, and the recurring theme is it's got to be simple. It's got to be cheap. And this is both of those things. So it's, it's, a, it's very, very, it's a good thing. Now that we're talking about Claris Connect, do you see a possibility of some limited functionality being integrated directly into FileMaker? And if so, any possible features? I mean, I know this is a you know, kind of a tough ground to be, to be walking on, you know, you can't, you gotta, you can't really answer everything, but I think this is something that, that the developer community would welcome to see some limited capability of Claris Connect inside of FileMaker. Um, I, I 100% agree. And, um, you know, I think when we uh, brought in uh, Connect and uh, build out the platform uh, to release the, the, the long-term intention there is that we, we need integration, right? No app can be an island. We know that. Even custom apps built with FileMaker. And of course, you can code integrations all day uh, with FileMaker, but it's hard. That's hard work. So the same problem that that school district IT manager had, you know, that commutes to the customers that are using our platform if they want to do integrations. And so that's a governor on your progress. It, it, it slows your speed when you want to change up your workflow and bring in another application into your workflow. And now FileMaker, you got to build it out. So you know, we, we felt it very important to have an integration uh, toolkit uh, like Connect, and uh, it really facilitates uh, the, the success of FileMaker as much as it does, you know, standing on its own. And uh, we get that the current presentation of the two products is a different experience, right? They act like two different products, but we think in terms of one Claris platform. And so we definitely want uh, tighter integrations between them. I think it would be fantastic if while you were within the FileMaker development experience, you could tap into Connect there. You didn't have to leave it and go and set something up, you know, in the Connect console space or whatever on the web uh, and then have it drive and you'd have to remember what you did in File. You know, it's, it's a little bit awkward because it acts like two different, two different products right now. And do we think we can make that better? Yeah, we do. I don't have any uh, announcements or predictions on, on specific features yet for you, John Mark, but you're, you're thinking along the same path we are, so. So we have to respect your time because you've already spent a couple hours with us. But I have two questions that I want to end up with here. And uh, then we'll probably ask you to come back again to ask the other questions that we still have. But so, and this is a really just, you know, it's not on the outline. I apologize. It's nothing uh, crazy or anything. But what's your favorite new feature in FileMaker 19? And what feature, the second part of it is, what feature do you wish they'd add to FileMaker just to kind of end this whole beautiful conversation we've had here? Ah, interesting. Um, yeah, great question. Um, I'll take the second one first. I think add to FileMaker, I want the add-on functionality that we introduced in 19 to get to its full uh, purpose, if you will, or, or, or really realize its full value. And where I'm, what I mean by that is um, I think the construction of add-ons and distribution of add-ons right now, we haven't finished our story, right? The whole point of add-ons in the platform is to accelerate and, and make easier the absorption of, you know, sort of the more challenging and difficult things in the platform, right? Like adding JavaScript uh, functionality to the platform and opening the platform so that you can extend its capability with JavaScript that's really powerful and available to probably less than 10% of our developers, right? But those 10% of their developers can share their magic, right? And, and bottle those things up and use add-ons as a delivery vehicle that anybody can drag and drop into a solution. So that notion of add-ons is for code injection 
and it's not just doing the hard stuff or making it simpler. It's also, you know, it's reusable code. I, I have themes and styles and things I like to use. I want to be able to plug those into my files all the time and easily. Yeah, I want to use add-ons as a transport vehicle. So to me, I think add-ons are so far, they are a fundamentally important part of the, the platform and its direction. And um, they'll enable me to do the hard stuff that I can't do anymore, right? So I, I want that to get better, the, the ability to, to create the add-ons and distribute them. To your first question uh, about my favorite feature, I got to tell you, I'm really jonesing on the new web authoring, right? The new quick start experience. Um, it is very limited uh, right now relative to FileMaker, but it really kind of reminds me of the, those halcyon days when I first picked up FileMaker in 1988 or 87 or whenever that was and, you know, started playing with this this tool um, in that I'm, I'm going back to those things we were talking about earlier where I'm trying to you know, really bend these things to my will and figure out what the boundaries of the features are and what I can create with simple drag and drop. And it's uh, there, there's something liberating about it being, you know, available in the web the way it is. So I, I'm kind of spending some time playing with it to see how far we can take it. And I, I hope other people will give it a kick, a kick of the tires. I mean, well. I think that um, where Claris is going, Andy, is absolutely tremendous. It's very exciting. Um, some of the new technologies are you know, I'm one of the the ninety percent who will never get to grips with JavaScript because it just doesn't interest me, and I don't have enough years left to learn it. But I think it's what it means to people who have those uh, skills is that you know it makes FileMaker a much more powerful tool as long as they don't get away from what makes FileMaker great and all the basic functionality that you can do without all of the you know the fancy stuff and. That's always been a consideration and a concern of mine is that I don't know how many people these days spend the time to really understand what FileMaker can do natively without going outside of it. I think there's still a fair amount, but I, I agree with your sentiment and I, I appreciate it, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm excited about the things that developers will never be able to do that Claris, only Claris can do, such as improving the performance of new versions of FileMaker. Doing something as simple as like when I do a find and I cancel that find, now that find is canceled immediately instead of perpetuating. It, it, no developer on the planet can do that. That is a Claris-only situation. And what you guys have done is you've sort of taken, not that you've never had, uh, you've always had passion around making the product better, but it seems now more than ever, uh, we're seeing such great performance out of FileMaker Server 19, and even more important than performance in many cases is stability. I can't think of a server that has been more stable than FileMaker Server 19, and I'll say that until I'm blue in the face. I tell, tell my staff every day, put them up to 19, put them up to 19. That'll solve all these problems they have. Well, we, we did have a couple issues about a year ago uh, that we have fixed, and uh, that was with a lot of help from from core community members that helped us go deep on a couple bugs that were kind of intractable. And... Uh, but yeah, this year has been a really good one for performance and stability. Um, when I say we've doing five, six launches a month or, or releases a month, a lot of those are performance and stability and they're invisible. No one's ever seen them come out, but they're making the product better. So I, I think right now it is a lot better than it was uh, even a year ago. Uh, and I appreciate your, your sentiment there. We'll continue to work on that, of course. That's always high priority for us. Andy, can I throw in my one, the one request that I would love to see is that when I'm in the relationship graph and I search for a table occurrence, it isn't obvious that I found it. Sometimes I have to stare at it for five minutes to say, oh, there's an outline around that one. If it just could 
jump off the screen. It would be so much, such an improvement. I love it. We'll get it on the backlog. Uh, no, I, I understand, Michael. I, the uh, the graph is one of those things that um, it can be daunting for a brand new user until they get it, and then it is magic, and then it's a super tool uh, to a, a it scales quite well. And then you get to a point where things get super complex if you have a really, really large uh, system and uh, and things like that matter. So I, I appreciate the call out and uh, I'll definitely take it home. But uh, definitely put these things in the product ideas. We'll get them in backlog. The stuff you're talking about, Mark, I think those are critical. And um, those are always the fun pain relievers. That cancel button on the find request, right? Uh, those are the ones that, that people love the most because that's pain you feel every day. And uh so, yeah, if you keep seeing those and we're not fixing them yet, let us know and we'll get them on the backlog for sure. Well, I think this is where we we end the show and, and thank everyone for being here, but especially, uh, you know, uh, Andy. And I think it it's important that he came on the show and, and was so open about things and such a good representative of the company. I, I, I can't say enough. Thanks so much for clarifying things, making it seem so easy to understand. We really appreciate that. Well, right back at you guys. I really appreciate the time. I mean, we've blown through two hours in a hurry here, but it was just fun. And uh, I, I would love to do this again someday and uh, encourage some other folks at the company to come out. Um, so really appreciate you. Appreciate you guys telling our story as well, uh, like you do. So uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, we'd like to thank Andy again for his time with us his candid opinion, as well as his candid experience. We really appreciate uh, his involvement and all the people uh, from Claris that have been involved thus far, not to mention our special guests in the community. Uh, we also thank them for that. I am personally honored by being here so often as uh, Michael and John continue to invite me and uh, have me um, be ridiculed in front of the whole world. But no, thank you very much. And ho hopefully we'll have you on again, Andy. My name is John Mark Osborne. Thanks for coming and listening to us. And please comment below. And I just hope that Andy finishes his career before he retires at Claris. I hope he stays there for a long time because it's really, I, I can't say enough about his involvement in the products. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you again. It was a great time today. It was our pleasure. I'm Michael Rashad. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time on Fireside Filemaker. You've been listening to Fireside Filemaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.